Hey, I'm Nate Flax. I'm Noah Longworth-McGuire. And this is Talking Lion. Talking Lion is a podcast focused on artist-to-artist conversation. We're primarily artists, a duo called Sleeping Lion, but we've been lucky enough to write, produce, and hang out with so many incredible rising artists since we started our project. Whether it's at sessions or parties or over cups of coffee, we've talked with our creative friends about everything. Music, life, love, and all the subtle complexities that come with being in the middle of a journey. Talking Lion is about hitting record in these conversations and sharing them with you. There's no real structure, nothing really prepared, just friends talking about life and what it's been like and where it's going. This is the start of Talking Lion's second season, and we recently launched a Patreon for fans of our show to help keep this going. Subscribers will become a part of the show in various ways, from providing questions to our guests, to getting a shout out on the show, to actually being on the show to chat with us. We'll even send you a mug. We pledge to contribute at least half of whatever we raise on Patreon towards the podcast's expenses, as well as supporting artist communities through arts, charities, grants, and by sponsoring local music events. So check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash talking lion. We know there's a scary uncertainty in the country and the world right now. We urge everyone who's listening to stay inside and do your part to prevent the spread of coronavirus. It's going to be a strange and difficult year for everyone, but we hope you can find pockets of peace and that our podcast can help make this time indoors better for you, even just for a few hours. We recorded this episode with our friend Matthew Chain. I first met Matthew through our mutual friend, Livia Piamelli. I'd seen him play live twice, but this was the first time we had a chance to really talk outside of a show. Some context for this interview. We recorded this in the fall of 2019, following the release of his EP, The Mathematics of Nature. An incredible Canadian songwriter with a knack for improv comedy, Matthew Chames' authenticity and meditative spirit resonates throughout his songs. So, without further ado, I'm Matthew Chame, and you're listening to Talking Live. Well, hello. Hello. Welcome to, uh, yeah, we've been, we've been chatting for a minute. We, we have, yeah. we have been, nothing's uh, changed. Nothing. I mean, we're just, we're now we're podcasting as opposed to before it was just a conversation. Right. We're in Technicolor now. We're in Technicolor. Yeah. We, we crossed the, uh, Oz, Ozian threshold. We've, 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 we've crushed the Wicked Witch of the East. So yeah, to speak. Right. She's like the under threshold. the brick road. How does she's, that she's under the house. the house. That's where the house falls. Oh, right. The house. Yes, the house yes, yes, falls, yes. Yeah. That's a scary movie, man. It, it is a scary, is a scary movie. Sc- my mom said that her first fear was the Wicked Witch. And I'm just like. The flying monkeys. My sense. mom is not a fan of the flying monkeys. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Which I, I get. That's like, that's a horrifying image. I was very sensitive as a kid. And my mom had to hide VHSs from me. Well. E.T. Mm. Oh. Couldn't see that around the house. Okay. And the Lion King, because I would mm. start bawling my eyes out of yeah. I saw the cover. Yeah. <laughs> Sad movie. Uh, for, for me, really sad. I, I had like a, for some reason, like pathological fear of transformation. Like, what do you mean? Just in general. So, a um, change? There were three movies that horrified me to the point of needing like childhood therapy. Yeah. Alvin and the Chipmunks, the werewolf episode, where uh, Theodore gets bit by a werewolf and slowly transforms into one. Oh. Like Dracula vampire movies. Yeah. And Spider Man. Ooh, mm. interesting. <laughs> actually, yeah. no, you know, I, I, I walked out of the theater in Spider-Man. Oh, wow. In defiance. At what age? Seven. Yeah. I had to get escorted defiance out. Defiance <laughs> I had to get escorted out of Toy Story 2 as a kid. But I was, like, I was like two, I was like maybe two or three. I was a very small child because I just couldn't take peril. Like whenever characters were in peril, I like freaked out. Also, this is just occurring to me. I had a, I had a childhood fear of like being, it's kind of like transformation, but it's also just like being trapped in your own skin. Like there's an episode of Teen Titans where Cyclops, not Cyclops, uh, uh, Cyborg, Cyborg. Where Cyborg was um, like became fully robot and the robot part of his brain started talking to him and like, like being like killed this person and like he was yeah. like trapped in his own like skin and there's an episode of uh life as a teenage robot 
Yeah, my life is a teenage, life is a teenage robot. Yeah. robot where she like had like a, a backpack that like controlled her thoughts, and that shit scared the uh, shit same out of Doc me. Doc Ock, Doc Ock in Spider Man Two yeah, also walked also out of that, that one in Defiance. Yeah. In Defiance, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I had a hard time with the Spider Man movies. Yeah, it sounds like for some reason, what scared you to death as a child? Well, you're reminding me actually, in, when you say transformation, <laughs> one that scared me. Another movie that really freaked me out was Michael Bay's Transformers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this past year. Um, <laughs> Shia LaBeouf, like yeah, can't take yeah, yeah. Him. No, um, was uh, the Eddie Murphy? Is it? F- it's not Fat Albert, is it? Or what's one when he's Eddie Murphy is like this fat guy, but he becomes hot. He becomes this like skinny hot dude. Well, he becomes Eddie Murphy, but right. relatively he's like he's really fat in in reality, but he becomes like Eddie Murphy sized and like dates this girl, and she doesn't know that he. In reality, he's like this really big dude, and at one point he suddenly starts like becoming the big self again and like his lips shoot out and like his big fat arms shoot out and he's starting to change he's driving a truck or something and i was i remember i was at my cousin's house watching this movie and i was flipping out did did willy wonka scare you for the same reason because willy wonka terrified me as all these movies like willy wonka that's a movie about child murder like it's just like like, yeah like just like there's an eeriness sweet child murder yeah Yeah, i don't yeah i don't know it's just i'm just trying to think that sounds like the opposite of shallow how Shallow Hal, yeah, that's another. That was, that was, what was that one? Sorry, I'm no, ruining everything. <laughs> I'm moving you're, around. You're all good. This is this is this is Mike. I'm just feeling. Mike I'm placement. feeling like my head is, is Mike too placement, tilted to the left. To, Mike placement with Matthew Cham. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think you should leave all this in. I, <laughs> some shifting. You know, I, I was I, in my head. I'm like, do we edit or not? No, we leave it in. No, Shallow Hal, Jack Black. Like, he's a very shallow guy. He gets right. hypnotized. He falls in love with Gwyneth Paltrow and then halfway through finds out, spoiler alert, it came out in 2009, that... Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. I, I don't know. I, I made it up. Oh, okay. I yeah. should have just, like... You should have stuck with it. Yeah. it. It was probably earlier than that. Could you imagine if it was 2009? That feels late. You, fact We're checker, checking, are you on it? Yeah. You find out halfway through that she's, like, really heavy set and stuff, and, and he has to... Right, rep, he rep. just sees her as really He gets hot. hypnotized into, like, thinking she's uh, hot or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember did, one. Yeah, Whoa. that sounds Whoa. more... Yeah. I, I thought it was, like, obviously, like, a you know, weird movie, but there was a great song by Ellis Paul in it called Sweet Mistakes. Mm. It's, like, it's good. Beautiful. So, uh... He so meets he, Tony Robbins in the movie? Tony Robbins yes. is the one who hypnotizes him. Whoa. Yeah, I yeah. remember this. yeah. yeah. Motivational speaker Johnny. Yeah, <laughs> playing himself. That's playing, uh, playing himself. Yeah, I mean that's 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 the goals of. That's actually that was Tony Robbins' big break. <laughs> the 2001 Jack Black movie. Hundred percent. Before you didn't know who Tony Robbins was, and now he's a household name. That was yeah. probably honestly like a really, really a big, big deal for him. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Definitely probably brought him into my life as an 11 year old watching Shallow Hell. <laughs> yeah, true. No, Who's for this me, big man? <laughs> so, so my, dad, my dad is a motivational speaker. No way. So that's uh, how uh, Tony Robbins entered my life is yeah. because you couldn't avoid it. You yeah. know, um, it's that kind of. In that world. Um, yeah, dad, motivational speaker, mom, and improv teacher. Right. Which we were talking about. This, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. You're a fan of improv. I am a fan, big fan of improv. Yeah, I fell in love with it. How did, when did you first sort of discover it? I discovered it after I graduated university. Um, I went to McGill in Montreal and I hated my schooling. I really loved like university and some of the stuff that I did and like people I met and I did some sports there and stuff. Um, so like from a community standpoint, I loved it, but from an educational standpoint, I hated it. I was in finance. Oh shit. Okay. And it was like, you know, obviously quite the opposite of what I'm doing with my life now. And 
I really, sort really of. hate it. Sort of. You still need it. We got to make some money. Yeah. You know? Well, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when I graduated, I made this like, you know, vow. I'm like, I'm going to do some stuff that I really enjoy. And I knew I enjoyed comedy. I knew I enjoyed music. So on the comedy front, I was like, I need to do stand-up comedy, but I'm too nervous to go and do stand-up. So I'm going to do take some improv classes and that will bring me to a level of confidence where I'll be able to do stand-up. I never ended up doing stand-up. I ended up falling deeply in love with improv kind of right out of the gate. Um, so I started doing it, yeah, in like 2013. Is that possible? That's a long time ago. No, it can't be that That's long. when Royals came out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Royals is what inspired. Like when I heard tennis court, I was like... I have to be on an improv stage. Right yeah, now. that's that's what I've always thought. Are you like, kidding me? You know, there, there was a pre-lord and a post-lord world. You know, and hundred percent, yeah. that is true. <laughs> that's very true. Actually, that uh, no joke. Like Lord's album really was uh, inspiring for me for sure. I mean, I mean, it's definitely opened the door for like a bunch of. It just, I think it really hit that that record came out less than was it twenty thirteen? Yeah, 2013. which is crazy because I feel like it's always been around. Yeah. Yeah, and I was definitely. Like, I, in my head, I'm like, I was in high school when it came out, but right. I was in high school in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Too. Uh, so was it like an acting class in, in Montreal like, or what, is it something so there's that- a, There's a school called Montreal Improv. Okay. And also like, it's same as here where like they have their training center and then also put on shows for the public. Yeah. So, you know, the community is rather, you know, relatively smaller compared to here, of course. And in Tor- Toronto, it's quite big and things like that. But I went to Montreal Improv which they actually do have a French speaking side to the schooling as well, but I did English speaking improv. Yeah, I feel like you'd have, maybe, uh, do you speak French? I speak French, but not to the level where I need do... to, to be able to do improv. Sure, yeah, yeah. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I started taking classes there. Like I did a drop-in class there where it was just like, I think the first Saturday of every month, they just do a free drop-in where people who are interested can just jump in the room and get like a very, very beginner's taste of what it's like. Um, so I did that and felt really, really nervous, I remember. But obviously I liked it enough to sign up for a level one class. And in that level one class, I had a teacher, his name is Joe. And you know, fast forward all these years, he's a good friend of mine. And he was like my teacher for level one, maybe level two and level five. Like he was my teacher a bunch. And this, you know, obviously we know this, that teachers make a big difference on how much you enjoy something. And he really made me fall in love with improv, I think in a big way. And then yeah, it just like became a big part of my life. Well, that's the sort of double-edged sword of like learning how to do something in what you love. Like I, I remember when I took um, a film course back in high school, our film teacher was like, I'm going to tell it to you straight. You're going to start hating 90% of the films that you watch because you're not going to be Whoa. able, you're going to know how they work now. Uh. But that's going to let you enjoy it when you come out the other side of it. Mm. You know, I think the teachers have to bring you through that. Because right. if you get stuck in the middle place where yeah. you like are analyzing, it's good that you have somebody like Joe to sort of bring you through, I guess, that place. Do you totally. do you watch uh, uh, improv out here now? Yeah. So or do it? Do you? Yeah, well, I started again um, because I did it for a few years there, like quite religiously. And I was doing shows every weekend and taking courses and joining house teams and all this stuff. But then it started slowing down as music, took more of my, you know, time up, I decided to invest more of my time in that. And I slowed down with improv while I was still in Montreal, but, and I was starting to do trips out here. Um, but I was always kind of in the back of my head that when I start to like settle down in LA, when I started to make that decision, I was like, once I'm a bit more settled here, I'd like to get back into it. So I did end up joining Second City. Oh, awesome. And I took uh, the first three level courses there, like the last few months. And I think I would be in level four now still had I joined it, but 
I started to do some shows and stuff and I was out of town a little too much yeah. to sign up. So I'd like to continue. I'm already like missing it after just like three weeks of being back out of it. But yeah, so I started uh, doing classes there. Before that, as I came to LA, I would always go to UCB and watch shows. Yeah. yeah. And now I've seen shows there and, and at Groundlings and at Second City and I've seen, you know, some incredible improv here. We, we go to UCB every Thursday. Oh, right. You were just telling yeah, me about like, this. Yeah, like pretty, pretty, because uh, there's something really special about improv totally. that like makes you laugh in a way. Yeah. Because everything, it's it's discomfort, yeah. it's unpredictability, mm -hmm. yeah. it's like all that stuff. Yeah. Now, were you into, when you were doing it, like, did you have a preference for Monocenes or Harolds or Taggins or like what, what was the thing that you were most sort of? Well, I definitely came up like doing it in Montreal Improv, which does... At least from my experience here at Second City, it definitely felt like a different like kind of pedagogue. Yeah. Pedagogue? Well, every yeah. every I think improv group one like, yeah. like school or whatever has its own like language. I yeah. think totally. Yeah. So it was like a lot of scene work and character building and like really like getting platform stuff for a long time. When when I started doing more shows and I was kind of graduating out of the training program part of it, I started taking Harold classes and I joined the Harold team. So that became like kind of the main thing. And I, and I fell in love with the Herald in that I just fell in love with like more, you know, long form shows where you're bringing back characters and callbacks and yeah. having these narratives intertwine and doing yeah. like that Seinfeld-esque thing. Yeah. It was just like so satisfying when you get it, you know, yeah. and when you start to nail it. And when, it, especially in front of audiences that don't know that there's this kind of structure behind it that's kind of helping you, pushing you in that direction. I mean, it's still obviously very spontaneous and creative, but they don't know that there's that, that, that framework that helps you get those intertwines to happen. And it's that much more satisfying when it's so spontaneous for them. Well, yeah. that's, I mean, the parallels to music are there. Like, you know, we, the structure has been laid out in front of us. And yeah. so the, the ways that we predictably or unpredictably or predictably unpredictably yeah. break those structural stuff totally is, you know, and, and that's my mom always said, even though I wasn't necessarily hype about improv as a kid, yeah. she sort of had that ethos in the house, the sort of yes and mentality. Yeah. Because she mm. was like, this is going to help you in life. Like yeah. if you go out, you know, or you meet people, whatever, yeah. like whatever they say, roll with it. Like whatever, yeah. you know, you're doing, lean into it. Like yeah. certain things like that, you know, I imagine. I mean, that's why like I mean, we've, we've met a handful of times, but like every time it's like a very interesting conversation. It's always very like, because yeah. you can just like be a part of a conversation right. no matter what, or be a part of, right whatever's happening in that moment. Yeah, know? I've noticed people who are into improv are always good at that. Like when you when you talk to them, they're always they always have that mm. like they're quick and they like come up yeah. they just like are, have that thing about them. Yeah, and it's and a, it is that quickness skill. and that and that listening that you develop mm -hmm. in it that's so yeah, it's so important for improv and it's so obviously leaks into every aspect of your life. A lot of different you can take a lot away from improv besides that, but that's a big one and it's something that I also really came in touch with because when I came out here I started doing classes again from level one so yeah. with mostly people who have never touched improv before. So you see the, the difference between like the teacher, let's say, and, and the, and people who are just starting, they don't necessarily have that muscle built yet where you're sort of like, Oh, what are we doing? Like, you know, and you don't just like roll with it and listen and like really quickly instinctively react to the yes and the going and the evolution of it and recognizing it doesn't matter if you mess up or you don't follow the, Thing you're supposed to do like you know so yeah just i i love that part of 
of improv? Well, I, I think almost ironically, like my egos kept me from taking a UCB class. Like it's been on my like New Year's resolutions for like the last, yeah. like since I moved here. But the the truth of the matter is, is that like, I'm afraid that one of two things are going to happen if I take a beginner's class. The first is that like, I'm going to see all these beginners and be like Bane and be like, I was born into it. I was molded yeah, yeah, yeah. by it. You know, like be kind of just like a bit of like, like yeah. kind of, I don't know, be judgmental, which I think is like a really shitty quality. But yeah. also my fear is like, what if I suck too? Mm. And it's like, I've grown up yeah. in this thing and still yeah. like, and I think that, you know, but that's also all excuses that I think I've made for myself. Like, not. I, I, I felt exactly those feelings yeah. by starting again, especially in like level one, when you're really doing the foundational stuff and it's like, it's obviously foundational stuff is important all the way through. So it's actually really helpful yeah. for someone who has some experience with it. And I've, been kind of on break for a long time so it's a great refresher but of course there's that like egoic mindset of like do I really need can I skip a few levels like can we get on with it you know this is kind of not challenging this is boring blah 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 so I definitely touch that too but even in that I, I, I definitely feel like I gained a lot from taking those classes and also learned a lot even from working with the people that I came up through level one two and three in second city with doing it here, so. Well, I think it also will always add like levity to live shows too. Like being able to be funny on stage, I think puts everybody at ease, mm. you know? Cause, Cause it's the opposite of being nervous in a sense, even though sometimes people use humor when they are nervous. Totally, you yeah. Know? And, and I think that the way, like even just how you commanded the room to have everybody sort of sit for the final song, mm. you know, I, I think that takes like a, a very specific kind of, I don't know, personality and like vibe. So I think, how it all comes together is really cool. Yeah. In Montreal, did you have like a musical mm. background? What did your folks, did you, and were your folks musical in any kind of way? Not so much. Um, my father was a fan of some, you know, music and we heard it around the house. We listened to the Beatles in the house and we listened to Blood, Sweat and Tears was like his favorite band. Huh. Do you know that band? Yeah. Like uh, that song Spinning Wheel is very yeah. much a part of my childhood. But no, they weren't such like musical people. They didn't really play instruments. My grandfather played the piano growing up, but uh, there wasn't a lot of music in my house in, in, in that sense. Um, but when I was a kid, my brother, who's three years younger than me, he suddenly got interested at a very young age to play the drums. Okay. And my father was like, great. So my father went out and bought this like, you know, kind of basic drum set for him. And he maybe screwed around on it for a week <laughs> or so and then got bored and it stayed there, sitting there. Um, and then a year or two later, I got interested in it and I started hitting it. And then I started taking lessons, um, or maybe not even a year or two, maybe much later. Cause I was doing it in my teens, my early teens. So, so yeah, drums suddenly became this like wonderful outlet for me. And I started taking lessons and taking it kind of seriously. Um, and I started developing all these dreams of like being a drummer with my life. <laughs> um, Were the drummers you looked up to? I mean, I was definitely into like Travis Barker oh, and, all that, yeah. and I was listening to a lot of, you know, Blink-182 at the time Yeah. and Chili Peppers. I was and, about to say, like Chad yeah, Smith. Just Chad like, Smith. Yeah. And, and I was also, I remember when I was starting to drum, I was really into 30 Seconds to Mars. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, man. There was that, you know, the, the song, The Kill. Yeah. Oh, The Kill. And they, yeah. and they have like, so there's this, you know, cool drum pattern to it where it's, 
you know, it's uh, your kick. Your your kick is very separate from yeah, my hi hat, and I couldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's it. Obsessed over that pattern that for pattern. so long. Yeah. So I couldn't, and at first I couldn't separate. <laughs> it's every time I hit it's the so hard. Kick, I would hit that, my hat. Like I didn't yeah, have that separation no, that's like, yet. That's like a little that that the pattern yeah. in the kill is like a little exercise for drummers. Just yeah. Like, how the fuck do I do it? So for a while, I was like, I was like, that's my goal is to separate this so I could be able to play. Yeah. The kill by Thirty Seconds to Mars. Did you have Rock Band like the game? Yeah. Yeah. I loved Rock. That was where. I learned how to play the pattern is they had the kill. Oh, oh yeah. They, they had it they, 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 that's that's why it's so well, and they also had the chili peppers and yeah. yeah, so that was where I was like learning how to do that, whatever. Yeah, it's a great feat. Um, <laughs> great feat. So eventually through my lessons and practicing and what have you, I eventually separated my hi-hat and my kick. I was able to do it and I'm able to play a lot more beats because a lot of it is you know, double kicks and stuff like that. Yeah. And then after that, I think I was like, my maybe work ethic at 15 or whatever wasn't <laughs> so strong. And I didn't necessarily have clear goals after that one. <laughs> so I, I, and I started probably like hitting a bit of a plateau that you need to like push through and I didn't necessarily push through it. So I was also, you know, again, like with teachers and stuff, I think I had a good drum teacher, but I think like maybe our styles were a bit different. He was very like jazz oriented. Sure. And I was learning, you know, to play with my, you know, Rit, like my oh, the, ankles the, the up, down, my, yeah. my my wrists up, and my my heel down. Oh yeah, stuff which is all really good technical stuff to know. But you know, a lot of drummers like like you're, Pepe, who I, I mean, work with, watch, yeah. he does both. You know, he learns, he does heel up and heel down depending on the style. So maybe that was a little limiting. I don't know. You could probably build a lot of things, but around that time, I just started to fade away from drums. Um, but that was really the thing that first like got me excited. Because I know for a period I was like, I'm going to be a drummer with my life. Yeah. Did you write at all around that time? Songs? Yeah. Not at all. Okay. Nothing. Um, I maybe like was drawing around that time. Did, did you do the art for your for your albums? I did, yeah. Okay, yeah. But I haven't been drawing all the way through. I was drumming as a kid. Um, and then it just came back to my life in the last year or two. But yeah, I wasn't writing songs. And I didn't write any songs until years, years and years later when I started getting into rapping. Oh. And that was like when I was like 19 or 20. And so walk us through that. Like what, what yeah. started the rat bug? Well, so after that whole period and that sort of music that I was into, I started getting into more hip hop stuff. And what actually really brought me into it, funnily enough, was around that time when I was graduating school and I knew like finance, I hated it. I didn't want to <laughs> do it with my life. And I wanted to pursue these things that I'm interested in. And around that time, I also discovered Childish Gambino. Oh, yeah. And, I, and it was when he was putting out these mixtapes, like he had I Am Just a Rapper and I Am Just a Rapper too. So I'm just a rapper too. had just come out and I was a fan of community. Oh yeah. And I, so I downloaded this, this mixtape and the first song I remember is like, bitch, look at me now where he's going over. It was a period where he was rapping over like indie beats, like yeah. indie songs, yeah. like yeah. Grizzly Bear and things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. And so bitch, look at me now was just like the first song I heard and it was all punchline rap, you know, cause he's this comedian. Of course. Yeah. And obviously he's evolved a lot in his music but but I even thought, like because of the internet like you had yeah. like you, you know, still have all that yeah you yeah. still have all those punchlines totally yeah like even when he started launching the project like yeah there was all, all the punchlines of his own i feel like it, it was really only recently that, that he went years, like that he super went. into yeah. yeah so so that blew my mind because i was like i fashioned myself this class clown comedian and i was also getting into this you know i was getting more into rap music and stuff and i was like wow you could do both that's crazy yeah and so I got so, so obsessed with that project and whatever he came out with after or before. And at, at the same time, I'd recently gotten my first MacBook and so I had some of my friends and we all suddenly had GarageBand. So me and two other friends, still like my closest friends, 
started just like making these mixes that we'd send each other where we didn't do much of anything. We just like take a Kid Cudi song and then <laughs> take a Drake song or whatever and like splice them together somehow in like not a very <laughs> cool way. Just haphazardly. Yeah, just almost like making a together. playlist yeah. with like maybe a small little DJ-esque you know, finding things that are maybe close in, in time codes, whatever. I don't know what we were doing. So we, so we would just, me and these two friends would send each other these garage band playlists for each other, not, not to anyone else or publicly or anything. And then one of my friends, Jeremy, who's again, my closest friend to, yeah. to this day, he started putting these little vocals on it. He would like start rapping on it. The first one he ever did was, I guess we were really obsessed with Kate Cuddy at the time, like up, up and away. Oh, yeah. He like did this little intro before the song started. Is he still doing music now? Yes. Yeah, so he's yeah. doing a project. He goes by Mona on the radio now. Cool. And he's actually slowly making his way out here. He's going to oh, be moving awesome. out here like in the next few months. So he started doing that. And then he started like doing more and more. And I, me and my friends were kind of like making fun of him. <laughs> but secretly, I was also like on my Blackberry writing lyrics. Yeah. And with the whole punchline rap. But I love Blackberry. Just yeah, it was all on Blackberry. And I, like with the childish stuff in my ears, I was just like obsessed with writing lines that I found clever and funny. Yeah. Do you remember any of them? Yeah. Can totally. You, can you give us one? I had ones where it was like, my rap's harder than a day old baguette. <laughs> that's great. That's Something awesome. Like that. That's exactly what I was imagining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was actually a line that was a song that came out because so after, so as this was all happening and I was secretly writing these lines, Jeremy was doing more and more and actually making songs and actually sharing them with more friends than just us two and all this stuff. And he had started going by Jay Bunny, his name's Jeremy, but then he switched his name to Boots Collabo. I have no idea where it came from, but that was his name, Boots Collabo. Boots Collabo. That was his name. And when he started Boots Collabo, he like put out this. Sounds like a Wild West like like cowboy that you don't want to mess with <laughs> yeah kind of does it's be like it's be like right. how'd you lose your arm boots collabo <laughs> yeah it kind of does. wanted yeah wanted, wanted. Dead, um, or alive. dead or alive <laughs> yeah, yeah. so he so he was putting out these songs and i don't know if it was before or after he put out this album called coke with lemon and ice because whenever he goes to a restaurant and they will say what do you want to drink he goes coke with lemon and ice that's not how i interpreted that but how did you? Oh, <laughs> it's very innocent, extremely I, I was G-rated. Like, that feels like a really complicated combo. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like ice around his neck. Okay, I got you. Yeah, coat yeah, and yeah, lemon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he asked me to be on a song. He asked me to feature on a song, mm -hmm. and I was super nervous, and I wasn't sure if I could do it. And honestly, I still to this day like thank him for almost being like my stepping to, stone yeah. to like into it because I don't think on my own I would have ever done my first things, you know? Um, so we wrote this song. I remember I was in Maine. It was like maybe Christmas break type thing. I was in Maine with my family and I was sitting by this pool. It was like the only time I've ever been to Maine. We were hmm. sitting by this pool at this hotel that my mom booked and I was just writing the first song. And we took a Childish Gambino, we took a Childish Gambino beat that he went over, of course. <laughs> Um, I think it was Bonfire. We did go over, oh, yeah, bonfire we did go over Bonfire and we also went over Freaks and Geeks. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So I think Freaks and Geeks was earlier. So I think it was the Freaks and Geeks beat. And we wrote this song and I was like the one to open the song with my rap. And it was like really long. <laughs> and I remember he had some ad lib by the time I'm over. Like, he's like, is it my turn yet? Or something. <laughs> it was really, really long. Um, and like every line like punchline. That's a, that's a like great ad lib though. Like, yeah, like I can imagine like turn, professional yeah. rap now, like, yeah. like the ad lib being like, my turn yet? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we recorded it in this closet of some, you know, this, this guy who was like working with him and he engineered it and whatever. And yeah, we shared it with our friends and people were digging it. So we like did it again and again and again. And then we became a duo and I started going by Scoops. 
Scoops. And he was Boots Collabo, so we became Boots and Scoops. Amazing. That's awesome. That's our rap duo, Boots and Boots Scoops. Boots and Scoops. I'm here for it. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, additional pitch. Go for it. Ice cream and shoe store. Boots and Scoops. That, that, that's it. <laughs> we'll fit you with any shoe you want. And that comes with a small soft set. That's a nice service. Like yeah, you're trying scoops, on yeah, shoes and yeah. like you're eating ice cream. You're eating ice cream, yeah. You know when they boots put the scoops. shoes on you? Didn't they used to do that when we were kids? Like yeah, they used they to put, put the shoes on me and tied it for me. Yeah, now, now, now they just drop a box on my lap. <laughs> Here, they're like, they're like, they're they're like you know how to do laces. I'm like, yeah, the laces aren't even in there. I don't know how to do laces. Yeah, yeah, still. yeah. I wear slip-ons still. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know. But I mean, I feel like it alleviates the two worst parts of both because my least favorite part about. Uh, buying shoes is the lack of ice cream and my <laughs> my least favorite part of getting ice cream is my lack of shoes totally yeah totally. that seems like a you problem <laughs> yeah I, I yeah i don't i don't get my showing ice cream up, when i'm not yeah ice cream no well, we were very avant-garde it seems boots and scoops yeah. yeah yeah but you didn't open the the shop we never opened the shop we never got to the brick and mortar no but you burned down the house with your wraps yes yeah brought down the house brought down that is that a punchline wrap no, I mean, I guess it's, it's what just you a said. line. You raise the roof. We raise the roof, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The roof we were like, I mean, fire. looking back, it's like we were trying to be cool and funny, and I look back at it and be like, oh, I was also extremely misogynistic. Oh, well, I mean, fair. Because I was an ignorant like little boy, even though I was probably already twenty. I was definitely. Like, well, I mean, if you're emulating like the kind of stuff that you're exposed to, like exactly. in hip hop, like that's just the palette of stuff that you're exposed totally. to. Totally, well. and I was like, kind of like, I would say, yeah, unconscious to that at the time. I was just, yeah, copying what I was listening to. Yeah. I think in in a lot of ways that almost goes, you know, untalked about. Men have grown up in like what's cool is to be kind of like this aloof, yeah. like over sexualizing and objectifying yeah. misogynist, which is not cool no like it's cringy and totally and and terrible but like and and you know this sort of toxin of our culture i understand like yeah, I, yeah it's yeah. like do you listen back and you're like ah oh, shit like totally yeah. i mean i don't really listen back that often that's right but yeah. um if i do i'm like yeah it's extremely cringe for me yeah so did, so so did you guys pop off or like what yeah. what <laughs> we were sensation throughout asia yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, montreal didn't know what hit him no yeah, yeah i mean well what it was the, it was the big <laughs> Are you hearing me punching the mic right now? It's so loud. I'm getting so angry. It's so loud. Uh, <laughs> no, you, I mean, you guys were the biggest thing since the canoe people crossed Montreal. <laughs> yeah, that's what like the first. The what are you talking about? You know, you guys were the biggest thought, thing. In, first you guys were the biggest thing in Canada first, since the canoe people the can, no, crossed no, no, Canada. No, famous Canadian rap duo, the canoe people. Oh, yes, the canoe people. That sounds like a huge... What were they called? I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. People Lewis crossed, and Clark? No, people... Like, famously, people crossed Canada with canoes. When? In history. Like, right, like before they check. found it? <laughs> Who found Canada? I don't even know. <laughs> I know we have, a, we have a bridge called the Jacques Cartier Bridge. He he was important. He was, I'm sure. <laughs> he might have I'm been in the trying, canoe. I'm just trying to level with you on Canadian history. Yeah. I or, took classes called Canadian history, and I don't know the answer to these questions. I know that you know, there's a lot of furring. Furs. Furs. Furries. There's a huge furry population <laughs> in like the in 1700s. Early, yeah. It was insane. Like... <laughs> Furries, that's they, go, they come to the community. It's like it's like my reports are everybody's dressed up as dogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
This is why we don't serve alcohol on the on the podcast because this is just how we are as like a sort of baseline, right, right. Yeah, exactly. like sober. Uh, this is just salt. Have you found chips. anything about the canoe? Is, canoe people is not Canadian. Canoe people is not giving me. It's anything not. Nothing's popping up. Canadian canoe people history. Well, speaking of canoes, you meditate. Wow, amazing segue. And and my my connection is canoes float. Mm-hmm. I oh. float oh. to meditate. Yes, meditation. Amen. Float tank. Float tanks. Yeah. Oh yes. So I mean that's my that's that was the thing right. that but you I saw did a, a silent retreat. Correct. What was that like? I've done two. Yeah. And they were both um the same place. I went to this place that does a vipassana style meditation. Um, just outside of Montreal, this area called Montebello, which is absolutely beautiful. It's like an hour and a half outside the city. And um, I discovered it, uh, I guess it must have been in 2017 at some point, where I suddenly got this desire to understand what a silent retreat is. And like, I was getting curious about it. So I started like Googling it and I found this place in Montebello that runs a silent meditation retreat. Um, So I signed up for it. And then I got super nervous and I made up all these excuses of, you know, life is in the way and I can't go. And I didn't end up going. This was early, maybe summer 2017. And then I signed up again for December, like just before Christmas, a 10 day retreat in December, 2017. And this time I followed through and went. Uh And what I learned was a lot, but one of the things I learned was I was going to experience what it's like to be silent for 10 days. But what I learned is the silence is just like a symptom or a container for the actual practice, which is Meditation. Yeah. You are there to meditate and you are doing a shitload of meditating. Not every meditation sit is like required. A lot of it is optional. They only do like three sits a day that are required. I say only relative to what it actually looks like if you do all of them. But <laughs> if you were to actually look at the schedule and say, I'm going to meditate 100% of the time that we're allotted to meditate in a day, you'd be meditating. I think it's like 11 hours and 45 Holy minutes a day. Shit, yeah. So it's like, it's, that's the program. You know, and you're learning a specific style of meditation, which is Vipassana, which has a lot to do with body scans. You're kind of like constantly scanning your body. So it's actually quite like a lot of work, this, this, this place. Um, <laughs> but it, it is quite an amazing thing to witness, you know, what happens when, A, you are silent and free of all distractions and society for 10 days. And then also to look at yourself, like, take the attention that we so often put on external stimuli and really focus it on internal stimuli, both physically, because you're literally scanning your body and just feeling what your body feels like when at its, you know, subtlest level, because you get subtler and subtler as the days go by and within, you know, your own psyche, because you're kind of left, left alone with your (laughs) thoughts and your emotions and what have you. And there's nowhere really to run and distract yourself from them. So it's a wild ride. There's a lot of waves. Of, is there a lot of people there too? Yeah. So this one is a space. It was like, it used to be a school and they, they bought it over and it holds their capacities. They could have 150 students at a time wow. and they all fill up. So there's 75 women, 75 men. This one, they're not all like this, um, but this one's segregated male and female. So we were 75 men. And then on the other side of the, um, you know, this big compound, there's a, another 75 women plus the staff and what have you. Uh, Was it strange to have 75 people in a room all not talking to each other? Yeah, I mean, it it settles into something that feels quite natural quickly. It 
I remember the first time I went, like the hours before and leading up to the moment where it's like, we're now going to take this vow of silence. I was like nervous. I was like, the second after, I'm going to go, bah! you know, like, <laughs> what's going on? You yeah, know, I mean, that's, like, that, that's, my, that's my first feeling. Like, yeah. You're in a room of 75 people. Yeah. Like, and immediately I just want to <laughs> yeah. like have a conversation. Yeah. Like that's like, but yeah, <laughs> I remember the first time I did it, actually, we were like, they were saying like, okay, you could still talk, you know, throughout the day, it's kind of like logistical stuff. You're getting your room, you're putting your phone and keys away, all these things. And you're, you are meeting people as this stuff is going on. You're talking to people. Oh, it's my first time doing this. Oh, it's my fourth time doing this. Oh, what, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, okay, hey, when we get to the meditation hall, that's when the vow of silence kind of takes hold when we get in there. And it was kind of unclear is like, is it when we get into the actual hall where we're all sitting down and we're all, or is it like once we enter the actual building where the meditation hall is? So as we entered the hall, like most people got really quiet. But I remember the dude that I was talking to didn't seem to care <laughs> that we were getting really close to the moment. And he's talking to me. He's telling me things about his life and this. And I'm like starting to get quiet. And like, I remember we're in this line up these stairs getting into the hall. Everyone's quiet. And this one dude is still talking my ear off about like, I don't know. He's like a swimmer or something. I can't remember. <laughs> it was something super, you know, just minute. <laughs> or he's telling me like he works in finance also. I couldn't remember what it was. <laughs> But your favorite topic to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, And I was like, wow, this is what I'm going in. Like, this is the last conversation I've had for 10 days. Wow. And then finally we do get in there and he shuts up and everyone shuts up and, and it starts. And then, yeah, as time goes on, you sort of like settle into where it becomes kind of natural. And, and why I said, it's kind of like a symptom or whatever. it, It actually just like helps you with what you're going through, which is like, you're just meditating all the time and you're just, it's kind of this space to be distract free and, and allow your mind to really slow down and not talking really helps. And you notice that on the ninth day, which is the last day where it's sort of like this reintegration into society day where you're actually allowed to talk again. And it's an incredible feeling because we're social beings and suddenly we get to talk and it feels incredible. And all these like, I remember, especially the first time I did it, I got flooded with this, like with these great feelings. Cause throughout the, it's, it is like kind of very volatile experience where I'm having days that are extremely peaceful and I'm having days that are extremely hard. And like, I need to get out of here and I'm dealing with anger and, 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 and like despair and like loneliness yeah. and all these things that you want to talk about, you want to talk about, or, or you just want to like, kind of way. you want to like get away from just sitting with it, you yeah. know, but that's sort of the practice is learning to sit with that. But, but especially that last day, man, like as we're suddenly allowed to talk to all these people that we had this crazy experience with, we haven't been able to talk to them for 10 days. We haven't been able to talk at all. And suddenly you could start sharing that. Like, I remember just getting flooded with all of this joy and like feelings of compassion, all these crazy, beautiful sensations where like, I don't know if you've ever done MDMA, but I've done it like a handful of times. And it was like the best MDMA trip of my life. (laughs) But all of the like negatives of MDMA of like tension in your jaw or whatever were not there. It was like such a natural, peaceful vibe, you know? And then we left, I remember, and like all this, we started listening to music in the car with the guy who was driving me back. And I was like, hearing everything in the music. You know, I haven't heard music in 10 days. Like, it was just incredible. I don't remember why I brought up the ninth day. I feel like I was bringing it up for a reason. About just sort of reintegrating. Yes, suddenly you kind of feel like how great it is to to suddenly be able to talk again. But but yeah, in the middle of it- communicating with people. yeah. Yeah, but in the middle of it, man, it's like, I don't know, I at least reached this- space where it was like, I wasn't like being like, oh, I really wish I could talk. That wasn't the, 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 the times that were hard didn't actually really have to do with like, I wish I could talk. It was more like, I guess, more like introspective type of storms that were, were, 
would, would, would go off and then other periods of introspective kind of peaceful times. Well, and that's, uh, I was mentioning to you at your show, like when I was 17, mm. I went on this very long camping trip. I went like mm. for 21 days to Squamish, Whoa. Canada. Yeah, yeah. I was underneath the Stamish Chief and there were, there were people in the groups. And actually I went with a friend of mine, but what he wanted to do was scale the chief. So like we had day one together and then he was, he was out for mm. like most, you know, for most of it. And I just remembered how like long days felt mm. like, yeah. and it was one of those things where obviously like I didn't have my computer. I even, I brought books and journals and it rained. And so all of them were ruined. Whoa. Like, like really, like I couldn't really parse through it. So it was more just like wandering around the forest yeah. and realizing what it means to like really be with yourself and to just be honest about what that relationship is. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people aren't necessarily. I think I, I'd maybe even have to reevaluate it yeah. like, you know, six years later. But it's but I think that the thresholds that you talk about too, of just like going through the unpleasant to get to the other side is one of the things that really struck me, I guess to some degree, both about like LSD and uh, float tanks. Mm. Like with LSD, especially like the first trip, there's like a big sort of almost like problem you got to solve. Mm. Like there's like just trying to understand the language of like what, like I wish that I could live my life in like the sort of mindset that like I, I am on LSD because yeah. <laughs> you get to sort of see everything for like what it is yeah. and like how you kind of like connect with it. Yeah. But the first time you're just trying to figure out what that means to you mm. in the same way that when you're in like a float tank, you've done like a sensory deprivation. Yes. Yeah. Like the first five minutes are terrifying because yeah. it, it all shuts off. You realize you're stuck for an hour yeah. with yourself. Yeah. Like without anything or anybody, and you know you can leave, but you're not going to because you spent yeah. money on it. <laughs> and like <laughs> the whole idea is that you're there yeah. with you yeah. for you know. And I think that that's a very scary. And I think that's why a lot of people don't necessarily meditate. Is yeah. that's a very scary. I know we. I mean, we were, you know, even talking about it today. Like the the first time in a while, I've had a second was when I was doing the sound bath mm. at your show. Yeah. And he did a really, you know, what he said is like, accept all sounds as part of the experience. Yeah. So, and what was nice too, I appreciate the playlist because like when we started, it just happened to be that the song that was playing in the background was Holocene. Ah, so cool. we sort of drifted off. Oof, so by the time we great. went back into dance music, I was already like where I needed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is something about just like going through, I guess, the the threshold. Yeah. Like the, the sort of chaotic atmosphere of like, yeah. I don't know, yourself or whatever. Well, it's true. It's so true that it like, cause when I talked to about it with some of my, some of my closest friends, I was actually just on the phone with one of my best friends yesterday. And I was telling him that I'm doing it again, or that I'm doing a retreat again. And he's like, man, that always makes me so nervous when you bring it up. Like just that, I, just the idea of bringing it up to him, like <laughs> yeah. it gives him anxiety. And I could see even like, sometimes I've, I remember having conversations with people after doing it for the first time. And like, you just see the body language of what, it might do to them, you know? Um, well, I think, it does, yeah. I think whenever anybody says that they've had like a transformative experience, like, I, I mean, I know my dad who would go to like the seminars, he would go yeah. to these things and say, and, and sometimes it doesn't sit right. Like sometimes people come back like a little bit dogmatic or a little bit. Totally. Like, yeah. It's, it's funny you say that because after the first time I did the retreat, I felt that because for the, it was the first time that I understood the mentality of that dogmatic kind mm. of thing or that like missionary vibe, which is like, you understand, like I found something that works. I feel incredible. You need to know about it. Yeah. You know? yeah. But it's like, 
And I got home and I was like, my mom has to go do this. Yeah. She has to go do this. And then I was talking to my mom, my brother about it. And you hit walls and you realize like, you know, and it took me kind of going through that and then going a second time and coming and reintegrating again after that second time of realizing like what works for you or whatever you're, you're the trip you're on or the journey you're on is really yours. And like everyone's on their own thing. And there's really no space for you to do that. If people ask you questions about them, about something you answer them, but like to, to try and um, convince people that this is the right direction is like not something that works. And it's not even right, you know, cause it's really like, it's really- It's personal. Yeah. It's personal. It's like, it's really actually just like, like I, I like to look at it as it's really creative. Like, I think, I think it's, it's possible, you know, it is just that we are such creative beings mm -hmm. in both whether we live, uh, you know, creative life to the point where we're, it's our day job or, or, or what have you, but, no, but, but you also, have to create your life. Yeah, you, 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 you pick your, your friends, you pick exactly. your, your, you spouse, pick your experiences. You pick, so yeah, it's creative. Yeah. It's like creative decision-making or creative or curating at least curate. Yeah. yeah. Like your path is, is, is fully creative. So like put all the colors you want in yourself, but it's like, you can't go to someone and be like, you don't understand the shade of red is like the best shade. Well, it's like trying to convince somebody who, you know, like doesn't like rap music, whatever. It's like, like, oh, you're not listening to the right one. It's like at a certain point totally. or like country music or whatever. Like, yeah. you know, at a certain point you can't convince somebody to like something. I remember after like tripping for the first time, I like was like, I think everybody should do this. Totally, like I, yeah. I was like Timothy Leary yeah, yeah, levels yeah, yeah. of like, yeah. I think we should just put it in the water and see what happens. <laughs> you know, and then, yeah. but, but then like when you really look at it, you're like, I'm going around like telling the closest people in my life to do a schedule one narcotic. Yeah. You know, yeah. or which so sorry, might, yeah, like, sorry, schedule one psychedelic. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. That like um, everyone reacts to differently. Yeah. Totally. And then the ironies of the fact that like the thing that like frustrated me about my dad was how he thought everybody should take the program. Mm -hmm. But it's a mixed bag I and mean, whatever helped I me. Mean, it sounds fascinating. I talk so much yeah. that I like the, the idea, <laughs> like it doesn't terrify me. Yeah. If anything, it sounds almost like appealing, Yeah. but also just like a very, I think if you look down the barrel of anything that is longer than two hours is, is a bit of a daunting, yeah. daunting thing. You recently moved to Los Angeles. There, I have no good segue for that, but. <laughs> what was the other one? I was gonna say, speaking of canoes. Speaking of canoes, yeah. uh, how about, okay. Speaking of transformative mm. and transitional experiences. Nice. Slash potentially being quiet for a very long time. Mm. Alone. Totally. As you travel. Ah, through life nice you just moved to los angeles correct <laughs> in a car by yourself that's right um what was that like amazing did I, you just pack it to the brim not really i packed it we, it we, wasn't we, to the brim if we stuck an extra sock in our car it would have exploded out yeah, got it yeah okay. packed to the yeah brim. packed to the brim like what was the, did you have big things in there oh yeah we, we had, had everything we owned. owned it was like got in the back it. of a minivan got plus it. like a mattress yeah. right yeah I, I, I was just like, you know, I was leaving my childhood home. So I wasn't taking okay. everything. Yeah, I packed up my bag and packed my trunk up, at least. I did have a guitar in there. Okay. No, that's a lie. I didn't. I got the guitar. Why would you lie here. on a podcast? <laughs> I've done more trips how, since. <laughs> how dare you, Matthew? <laughs> I'm so we sorry. want honesty and nothing yeah, but it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But I did have a pretty packed pack car. And I, yeah, decided in, like, I did the trip in September, late September. And I decided, like, early September that I was doing it. What, um, what prompted the move? A few things. One being that I had taken maybe, let's say, my fourth trip to L.A. And it was definitely the best one. It was definitely the one that made me feel like 
I started to like see that I could build a community. I didn't have it, but I could start to build it. And there's people that I can collaborate with on the music that I want to make. So I knew I needed to come back and I knew it had to be indefinite. Had you met Jason at that point? Yes. And that was one of the big catalysts. We had met that trip late at that trip. How did you guys meet? We were thrown into a session by his then manager. Okay. And we wrote Sunflowers that first day. Oh, wow. Yeah. So is that how you met Livia? Yes. Okay. And then Livia brought you to Big Noise? Correct. Okay. So I met Jason like, so what's funny is I had booked maybe a four week trip out here, four or five weeks. And then that trip was over and I was planning on coming home. And I just started to meet Jason's manager at the time named Brett. Brett, okay. And Brett, uh, Brett Bassick. Okay. And he, he was like, yeah, you should work with my guy. But I was leaving. So he wanted to put me in with Rabbit, but I was leaving. But then I got a call from uh, someone who works at SOCAN, which is the Songwriters Organization of Canada. And they have a house in Silver Lake that they put songwriters up in. And it's usually booked out many, many months in advance. But this guy knew I was in LA and he was like, yo, the house just got like someone canceled last second. Do you want it for the next week? Oh, wow. And I was in a place where I'm saying yes to things like that. And I was like, for sure. So I changed my flight and I stayed an extra week. And it was in that week that I met Rabbit and we wrote, and Jason and we wrote Sunflowers. And And then was that the first song off Mathematics that you guys worked on? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, because he produced everything. That was the first thing we ever wrote together. Yeah. So... We, we'd written, we'd written, I remember, cause I was at a, in a time where I was also doing a fair bit of sessions and I was writing, you know, a song a day type thing. Yeah. But that day we went pretty slow, which was kind of nice. And we wrote the production and we, I wrote like the first verse and like, I loved the first verse mm-hmm. and that was it. And then I went back and took it home and I think I wrote the pre and chorus and I came back and we finished the song before I left LA. So then I- What, what was the first sort of, moment when that song like was there a line that like made sunflowers sort of come alive yeah or i mean sprout or bloom boom. if you will wow your friggin' segues and <laughs> analogies are crazy uh but <laughs> but i no. what happened was uh i did have i have it was also a time i was starting to like really really love 22 a million bunny bear's album mm-hmm. and i showed him and i was showing i was starting to show songs and sessions and people are like oh great bunny bear slap yeah. on a vocoder and it's like we're going to the moon but like sometimes that doesn't really do the trick, you know? Yeah. But then I showed Jason. And for some reason, it was, it's funny. I don't know if this is a cause or effect thing, but... Was it fire? Going, Did you show him fire? Fire? Like, I was born in fire. Well, oh, no, it's not fire. called, oh, it's not called fire. fire. It's called fire. It's called... Like, um, 45. That's the one. 45. And it's so And it's so dry. Yeah. It's so dry. So dry. So I showed him that song. And I remember like leading up to going there, I'd never met him before, but I just had like this good... I, I felt optimistic. I remember walking walking up the driveway there and I, so i showed him that song and like i could even tell by his reaction to the song i was like oh this is a sincere reaction to how mm. like yeah. how sick this is i don't think he had heard it before mm. and and then he pulled up these so ryan linville do you guys know ryan yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. We went to so, with him. he actually played uh sax on our first la show incredible yeah so ryan and jason are, are big collaborators and ryan had had a session with jason recently before that session and he had recorded all the sax stuff hmm. Oh, so shit. Jason pulled it up. Wait, so that's Ryan on the track? That's Ryan. That's awesome. That's and Ryan cool. learned it many months later, because like, <laughs> we, you know, before the song came out, but uh, he had just like chopped up uh, a little melody from the sax and started vocoding it and fucking it up and tuning it and pitching it. And then he came up with that that crazy- Like stack. S- like Stacked sound. So he was doing that and I was just like noodling around in the back. And usually, especially in sessions with new people, like I'm pretty quiet about my little lines. Cause like, I like to be all sensitive and yeah. whatever. So I was like doing my thing in the back 
Um, and he was, he was like, oh, that's, that sounds cool. Um, but I think what happened before was he had started that, that saxophone thing. I was really digging it. And then I went out of the studio, which is at his house, but not in the main house. Yeah. I walk out of the studio and go into the main house to use the bathroom. And when I go into the house, there was a pot of sunflowers <laughs> sitting on the windowsill. And my father, who passed when I was quite young, he was 12, I was 12 years old. He wasn't 12 years old. Um, <laughs> young dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Super young. Do you mind if I ask how, how, how he, he died? Yeah. He had a sudden heart attack oh, at like 52, 53. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, it was, it was pretty shocking, of course. Um, but I, you know, again, like when I started making music, it was like all very clever and fun. I wasn't writing about my father. Yeah, you're, it was many you're, years you're later. You were doing boots and scoops. I was doing boots and scoops. Yeah. So it was many years later that I actually wrote my first song about him or, or losing him at such, a, such an age. And then it wasn't until years later that I wrote something like Sunflowers where it was something that I actually wanted to share. But basically my, my father loved sunflowers. It was like his favorite flower. And we had them growing up, like big stalks of them growing up yeah. when, when we were like children in our, in our backyard. So when I saw those, and I was also in a period at that time where I was just like, I don't know, I don't know if it, maybe I was going through some sort of regrieving process or, you know, I had recently the year prior lost my grandfather who really took on a fatherly role in my life. So I was definitely going through something again where my father was top of mind and I was writing, already writing songs that had to do with him. And then I saw those sunflowers and it kind of just like, so I think like sunflowers, which is the opening word of right. the song was also the first word written. And I had written that vert, the whole first verse. Sunflowers. And we, we recorded it that day. And for whatever reason, we had decided we we're going to tune the song down like two, one or two semitones. And then we listened back and we really liked the effect it gave my voice. Yeah. Because it gives it this like formant thing, but it's not the same as when you form and shift. slap the actual formant shift on like the, you know, Antares or whatever on it. Yeah. It was like, it had a bit of a different texture, a bit of a different quality that we're like, we're leaving it like that. We yeah. ended up hiking it back up for, to record the second to record verse the whole thing and then bring, and it, bring back it back down. down again. Oh yeah. You know? So that's, yeah, that's how, that's how that song like first took hold. That's awesome. So and you cool. wrote your favorite lyric uh, for our wall is from, from that. Correct. What's yeah. the line? So that is the opening line of the second verse, which I'm not sure if I wrote both verses that day or if that second verse came later, but the line is uh, tall towers. You were the shield when they would scare tall me. Towers. And the reason I care for that line so much, I mean, I just love when, you know, when, when I'm writing and I often write lyrics alone mm -hmm. and melody, like, you know, the top line melodies. Um, and I just love when it just, you know, it just shows up on the page. Yeah. Like it just, ugh, like yeah. just drops into you. Or, or you try like three, like three songs, maybe even three songs or four songs to try to say something that you, that you mean. And then you, when you finally... When it just, it? yeah, encapsulate yeah. something. Like that's special. Yeah. So just like, it's like improv. It is improv. It is you know? improv. We're, we're yeah. doing improv in there. And it just sort of poured out of me. I think both those verses really did. Like those verses were special. And that line poured out of me and I, and I loved it because I love it. It's like obscure and it's hard to really understand what I'm saying. But, but what it means to me is like growing up, I used to, me, me, my brother and my father were like this trio. 
We yeah. were like all best friends. We were young kids, you know? And it was like us and our dad. And my mom was kind of like, obviously very important to us, but she was like this like queen yeah. that we put up on this like pedestal that my father was like, you don't swear around your mother. And you, you know, he taught yeah. us to be very respectful to our mother, but with our father, we could like punch him in the stomach and things <laughs> like that, you know? So we would do a lot of stuff together. And one of those activities was we'd go on bike rides a lot near the house. Uh, yeah. And there was this bike path not too far from our house that we would take a lot. And on it, there was this really big TV tower or like electric tower or something that we would, it was kind of in the middle of the path and we would, you know, get close to it and eventually pass it. And at that young, tender age, a very sensitive kid, it would scare me. Like just its sheer enormity scared me. Yeah. I don't know if I thought it was going to fall on me or what have you, but <laughs> I just, it scared me. So I think probably what I often did, this, you know, this line maybe came from my subconscious and I, it, it remembers better than me, but I think, you know, I would often bike to the right of my father so, so that he was, it was in between me, you know, he was in between me and the tower, Yeah, right? you know, and it kind of just symbolizes the, the way I looked at my father at, at, at that young age, which was like my shield, my protector. Um, so yeah, that, that line just like holds a lot, something, it, there's very, something a lot, like it's really rich. It's yeah. very rich. Do you think the reason why that was the first, you know, of all the songs that you wrote in the five weeks that you were there, do you think the reason why that is the sort of song that sparked the project is it's because it was like the first time the sort of floodgates opened to talk about him? Mm. That's a good question. I think, I mean, I remember on that same trip, I had written some important songs. I mean, something that I haven't mentioned yet also was like the other catalyst for me taking that drive and going was I was in a relationship that ended, you know, weeks prior to me deciding I'm going to drive to LA. Oh. We, and we were already, you know, going through some volatile times beforehand and, and on that trip that I was out here before when I wrote Sunflowers we were still together and she had actually come out here for one of those weeks to stay with me and that week was I think half of it was really good and half of it was really <laughs> tough um, and there was obviously this undertone of me like you know spending more and more time here and and, and obviously my the trajectory of my life was looking different than hers among other things but basically so on that trip I was already in this like kind of tender space with that and also again like you know, this re-grieving thing was happening. Yeah. So I was writing a lot of songs about her and I was also starting to write songs about my father. And one of the other important songs I wrote about the, um, kind of that on that trip, which isn't on this project, is actually a song I wrote to my brother. Oh. And it's me speaking to my brother from a place of like, you know, we both went th through this extreme trauma and hardship together at a young age. And I just want you to know that I'm like really here for you. And even though maybe it was hard for me to, fully explicitly be there for you back then because I was 12 and you were nine. Yeah. Like, I want you to know that I'm here for you, you know? So it was like, that was a really powerful one too. Do you think that one will ever come out? Maybe. It's called Kevin and that's huh. my brother's name. And I obviously got to share it with him and my family and, and that was super important. And yeah, I would love for it to, to exist in the world one day because I think it's a powerful song. Um, but maybe that was also the thing that, you know, like was kind of a bit of flint to yes, like then get sunflowers just a week or a few weeks later which was the real floodgate of like being able to speak directly to him to my father mm. and that was the first song that really that came about well and i think on the other side of sunflowers is thoughts mm. which i imagine is about about the relationship correct um, so thoughts i think was actually the second song we ever wrote together <laughs> <laughs> i'm following the thread I'm yeah I, I think for a while there we were like we're gonna put out an album and mm -hmm. it's gonna be in the exact order that we write the songs and we're going to put out every song we write. <laughs> and that didn't end up happening. That was our plan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I think one point. But I think some everyone of the orders, has that plan at one point. Right, exactly. Yeah. Every song I make is fire. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, so that didn't happen exactly, but Sunflower and Thoughts keeps that dream alive a little bit because they are in that order on the project and they did they were track one and two in terms of us writing it chronologically. So I after Sunflowers, I go back home to Montreal. In that time period we break up. And then I drive to LA and I move into a place here for like the whole fall. And that's when I start to really work with Jason with Rabbit yeah. in like a consistent place. And obviously I'm like really feeling raw from this breakup that just took place. Um, so was it, if you don't mind me asking, was it mutual or was it sort of getting there or was it? I mean, I, I broke up with her. Mm -hmm. I think I think we were going through stuff and I think, you know, it was it was coming, but I, I definitely pulled the trigger. And, and I mean, not to skip if you have other questions about the other songs, but but <laughs> Departed, which comes after Thoughts, yeah. um, is actually about that because we have a very on and off relationship mm -hmm. and it's always it was always my doing. It was always me running away and coming back. And Departed is about that, is about that on and offness and me always getting scared and running away and always coming back and her always letting me back in. And that's why the chorus is like, why do you still let me in? after all yeah that i've done you know so th that breakup which was kind of more of like the finale I, I think well i guess we'll wait and see but we've been apart now for over a year yeah um yeah so well that's i mean what i think is uh for me like made like thoughts really come alive was just the detail of you know extrapolating if you're as uncomfortable as me with all the futures we'll never see if you're as uncomfortable as me without these futures we'll never see that's the line. Yes. Um, that's, I mean, that's the thing that I think haunts me. And I haven't been in long stuff, but it, totally, like yeah. what always haunts me, especially yeah. even on the shorter ones is like, oh, this could have gone on totally longer. Yeah. You know, we could have had a cool thing. Yeah. Know. Totally. I mean, those are, those are the most painful, you know? Yeah. yeah. Funnily enough, we've, we've gotten to actually live that out a bit because we have, like I said, broken up and gotten back together a bunch. And one time we did that, which was like, actually we broke up and we were apart for like about nine months. And then we got back to together and we were together for almost a year until we broke up again. Yeah. <laughs> but but we almost got to see that through in a sense, because I think that first big breakup, it was a very like uh, volatile time. And it was just, it wasn't like a clean breakup at all. Not that this one was, but this that one was really hard. And I think we both felt, I definitely felt like it wasn't necessarily over with us. Yeah. It just felt like we were, it was a, we were in like a really in, unstable toxifying place and then nine months later we got back together and we were actually able to see like oh what does that future look like yeah when we're both in better places and I'm, I'm actually very thankful and grateful for that time we got to spend together in those you know almost a year later when we I think we're both uh in a bit more of a matured and and, and stable place and she's still you know like we're, we're still in communication a little bit Mm -hmm. And I think sh there'll always be a space for her in my heart. Like, I think, and and hopefully we can maintain a friendship as time goes on. But uh, yeah, we just have like we have some like crazy history together. Well, and, and, and that's the crazy thing about like you know loving somebody, but like in the sort of broader like life sense of the thing is that yeah. the idea is that the consolation is don't make a stranger of somebody that you know so much. Yeah. About and I think yeah. that that's when a breakup happens. 
it can go either way. I mean, it could go like you then never see the person again, but also it could also stop the healing to to have them as part of your life like immediately afterwards. So it's a complicated. Yeah, it's I, very I say this as being I'm I'm day five of a breakup. Right now. Right now. Oh my goodness. So it's like it's. Wow, that's raw. Whew. Yeah, it's it does your brain in just a little bit, but like there's songs. There's always songs, and songs, there's yeah. there, you know. Are you which, feeling? Are you feeling that feeling you feel when you? listen to songs that are about relationships or breakups and like, Oh my God, the flavors in your body really respond to it. Yeah. I love flavors, flavors in your body. I think that that's awesome. Yeah. That, Cause that's exactly what, what it kind of is in a lot of ways. Like the sad songs don't do it and the happy songs don't do it. Like I feel like I need human music, you know, like Rick and Morty, like just the bleep bloops or, or like an audiobook or just something. Uh-huh. And that's why it was actually really cool to, cause your show's the last show I went to. I think it was really cool to, to watch the sort of thread of of that through your show, through mm. the sort of experience that I was having. Mm. Also, with a little bit of rosé coursing rose. through my veins. Yeah. Um, it was just going from just like recognizing red flags and problems and finding a sort of like resignation in that uh-huh. and sort of recognizing the sort of positives of getting out of a sort of experience, coupled with like feelings of regret or fears of of whatever's coming next yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and everything, which is, which is why I think, and this is my segue into it. Like as far as flavors go, like reason is one of the happier songs mm-hmm. on the yeah, record. Totally. I feel like I'm, I'm deflecting the question a little bit cause I don't know how I feel yet about m- listening to music. Yeah. If anything, I'm just trying to write stuff that feels like I can like purge uh, yeah, yeah. certain feelings Yeah. so I can, or, or reclaim certain songs mm. or locations, whatever. My cousin calls them casualties. The songs stuff you can't you lose. The stuff you lose the in a relationship. The pop culture that you lose. Uh, the movie you can't close. watch. Right, right. The, yeah. the songs you can't listen to. Totally. Reasons, I think one of the happier songs on the record. Yes. How did that song come to be? Maybe it was our third one. No, I don't think it was. <laughs> uh, I think it was actually our fourth. Yeah, so Reason was you know, still kind of around this, that same period when I had first gotten, gotten here after that breakup. And uh, I think that chorus came about first. You gave me the reason. that's what led to like kind of the theme of the song, which was sort of remembering some of the, some of the really good aspects of, of our relationship. Um, and one of the things that I was maybe dealing with at the time and especially at times in our relationship is like, you know, I, I, I mean, I pull from both ends in a lot of ways. Like I am a very outgoing social person who likes to talk a lot too. Um, I'm also very like introspective and I'll go on a silent retreat for 10 days and I'll say <laughs> a word. So I definitely have that introspective side to me and, Sometimes that leads me to spending t- a lot of time on my own. Um, and sometimes doing that can send me into some like darker thinking patterns. And I have certain things when I'm not on silent retreat that act as great, you know, ways of uh, soothing those feelings, whether it be like my phone or computer or weed is a good one. Do you play video games? I don't. Mm. But being in my relationship, you know, this was obviously something that was kind of known too, you know, and I mean, we all have them, but like it was something that recurred in our relationship because I am someone who like likes to spend his alone time. Unlike, you know, and everyone does, but maybe I 
I did a little bit more relative. So it was sort of like coming from that, which was like, there were times when I would get into those zones, but my girlfriend would at the time would kind of help me not necessarily fall into those modes a lot right. by just being there for me and being someone who, you know, just when you're in like those healthier, stable places, which we were in, we did have many beautiful cycles and times in our, in our various relationships <laughs> um, where, you know, it would almost like save me from those things. Holding space in a, in a sense. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and just like, or even just like the, 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 the life stream you're in, the timeline, the way your days unfold, don't, they wouldn't result in me kind of like just falling to these dark corners. Well, yeah. Cause like, like, like in the song, it's like that other person gives you a reason to want to feel better and to be better in a particular exactly. like time frame or a particular context. Exactly. And, and I feel and like you're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's almost like, it's kind of like accountability, you know, so, yeah. something that I've learned a lot about myself in the last few years and music was a big way, way for me to learn this and, and just writing, which is like, I am someone who does thrive in like structure and discipline and accountability. It's why I like going on retreats. It's why like I realized, oh, on, on a song camp where we have to write five songs in five days, great, like sign me up. Yeah. And one of the reasons I moved to LA, it's like, okay, I have to be at sessions at 1 p.m. when I have them booked and there's hundreds of producers to work with, not two, you know, yeah. like in Montreal. So, okay, it makes me accountable and more productive. And when left to my own devices, I'm, it's, I'm, even, it even happened to me yesterday. Yesterday was my first day of a weekday where I didn't really have anything booked. Mm-hmm. Like for a long time, I've had a very busy few weeks and I was like, wow, sick. Like I'm not, not going to do anything. Have a free, free day? Yeah, yeah I'm going to do whatever I want. And like the beginning of it was great. I like moseyed around, went to get coffee with a friend. It was chill. But then I ended up back in my house by myself. And like, I just get into like a very unproductive, which is fine, I, but I, just I in like a out. shitty, yeah. yeah. Like I'm yeah. like, I'm just I like, Five hours go by. I'm like, what was I doing? Like, I was on Instagram, yeah. and you know, it's just like a mess. So, I, yeah, I don't like getting into those areas, and even maybe even the structure of a relationship when it's healthy allows you to not fall into those to those spaces. And I know mine helped me with that a lot. Um, and even just like she's a very you know kind and caring person who is very empathetic and able to be. You know, she's actually a psychiatrist now. So she's, you know, very like much a kind of therapist. She's listening naturally. to the, the record and analyzing where you're at. Probably. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe, but she's, uh, she also learned a while ago not to overanalyze songs, my music. Yeah. Yes. Because that was hard for her at first. I that think that was, I, I was, I was like, I'm going to play you this song. It is how I, a very specific exactly. feeling. It's a you got to disclaim it. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a moment. Yeah. Stretch it out. I'm stretching it out. Feeling yeah. at one like, point. You're yeah. gonna be. Yeah. You're, it's probably gonna hurt your feelings. Yeah. There's no way I can slice this. Yeah. But I don't feel it now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so that and then and then that that's how reason was just born. And I really just liked exactly like you said. It's it's happier. There's an optimistic quality to it. Even just like the. Like on the synths, like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it's it's yeah. it's got like a nice sort of like upbeat, like even um, uh, like I love in the pre when like the sort of sw- like shuffle beat kind of comes in, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love yeah. the pre-course. Yeah, it's like fun. when you compare it to the other songs on the record, and that's the interesting thing about like the sing- singles versus the record. So when you hear it sort of in a like on its own, you know, it's just a nice song. It feels good. It's really well written and very well produced. Shout out to to Rabbit. Shout out. But when you listen to it in the context of the record. It's like, here's like the heavy sort of darker, like grittier songs. Mm-hmm. 
And then you have something that's like a breath of fresh air for a second, totally. you know? Yeah. Which is why I think it's interesting. Is the next song Byways? After Reason, yeah. Yeah. Which is like, I think one of the more resigned, cautiously optimistic yeah. one. It's like, mm-hmm. I, I want to do all these things. Yeah. You know, I, I have sort of visions for what's like coming next, you yeah. know? It's just, and just how it hangs. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's cool. It's like, yeah. but also... I think some of the rap chops come in on like that that ongoing triplet section. Totally. Yeah. The second verse. Yeah. I wanna get older and bigger and better and stronger and faster and leave behind all of the things that don't matter and cut through the chatter, make people feel better. At least we live sadder than they are now. Yeah, I teased that in a little bit. <laughs> that was fun. What uh, what inspired Byways? So Byways is the only song that we wrote not here in LA. So after I spent about five or six months here after my drive here. But I didn't have a visa or anything. I was just here as a Canadian tourist, you know, like, and I could be here for six months. So literally on like the day that it would have been like over six months, <laughs> I drove up from LA to Vancouver and I crossed the border back into Canada. I decided at the time, like I needed to apply for a visa and get a visa and come back down. Yeah. And I could have just gone to Montreal and like stayed in my house with my mom and like waited for my visa. But I was like, I don't know. I just did this epic drive and journey across the country and I didn't really feel like going back to Montreal. It kind of just felt like this digression. And I decided- like a setback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to go to Vancouver and just, and one of my closest friends has recently relocated to Vancouver. So I wanted to like hang with him and, and just like create this little life for me for a second in Vancouver and explore that city. In the city? Yeah, so right. I lived, so I actually stayed there for two months and it was amazing. I like, I also decided I'm going to Vancouver. I'm gonna like get a little place and I'm gonna get a job and make some money. Like what sort of job? So I got a job at in a kitchen at a restaurant. Oh wow! So yeah, I didn't mention that earlier, but around like my teens and stuff, I was working in a lot of restaurants. Yeah, and mostly in kitchens and and things like that. Like I really, when I was young, I wanted to be like a, a chef. So I was always in restaurants growing up. But and you still cook now, right? I still do cook. Yeah. But what's your favorite thing to make? I like. I used to make a lot of risotto. Oh, it's kind of like my go-to a lot. I haven't done that in a long time. But um, more recently, like I started making, like Jason and Liv love it. I started making this like uh, falafel dish with like, pita and stuff and like these special little sauces. You guys will have to have you over for dinner. Like Noah loves cooking. I'm terrible at it. Like yeah? I forget to stir the pasta. Oh boy. Like do you want a, do you want a brick of pasta? No. I'll make you a brick of pasta. I'll make you a brick of pasta without salt. The first song we actually, that, going back to Boots and Scoops, the first song, that first song that I rapped and that whole <laughs> yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. it's called Al Dante. Oh, that's great. So, that's could, great. Is it because you guys were sort of hard? Sort of hard. I don't even want to say why. It's kind of <laughs> oh, no. Whoa. Suffice to say, it, say was, no more. It, was a, it was from a boots line, not a scoops line. I take no responsibility. <laughs> that was all him. Say no more. Yeah. <laughs> Putting boots on blast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, I, I, I went, went to Vancouver, Vancouver, worked in a kitchen, made a lot of good friends there. Like, really loved my time there, actually. And then... Around this time, you know, Jason and I had written like a lot of songs now and we'd become much closer. And he was like, yo, I'm going to run this song. I'm going to put a song cam together and we're going to do it in Nashville. And he's signed to uh, like a co-publishing thing that one of the publishers is in Nashville and has like oh. a space there for us to do it and a house to put us up. Oh, is, like, that, is that Trimble House? Is correct. that what you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Is that, is that what you did? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Trim, that's Kara's With Art thing. House. Yeah, so we yeah, stayed at Kara's house. house and like it was amazing. Yeah. Like, so it was me. 
and him and uh, this guy Danny Mayich or Danny Magic, who's a producer out here as well, another good friend of ours, and someone else who I collaborate with a bunch, and we have songs that are definitely in the in the future gonna gonna be out. He was like, yeah, we we all are gonna meet in Nashville, and then there were a bunch of people from Nashville and some people that were from LA but visiting Nashville, and it was kind of like this rotating thing. And we did like three days there. So when he was planning that out, I was like, you know what? I love driving to. Montreal to LA. I love driving LA to Vancouver. I'm going to drive Vancouver to Nashville. So I went on another drive. This was the time that I had the guitar in the backseat. Um, <laughs> well, and I, I want to tangent again real quick. Yeah. We're getting the, we're getting the hobbies like as sort of like footnotes totally. in the, the broader story. Not everybody can do long ass car rides. Like I think right. it's one of my favorite things to do with Noah. Mm. Like I, I drive to Colorado. Like I, oh, I love doing long car rides. Nice. What is your long road trip survival guide? It's a very good question. And it's weird. Cause like I used to do some drives. Sometimes I would drive like Montreal to Toronto, Toronto to Montreal. And that's like a six hour drive. And I'd be like, man, this drive is forever. I hate it. <laughs> I'm always flying. And then I hit the road for this long drive that took me eight days. And suddenly I got into this rhythm where it's like, I can do 11 hours in a day. Psh whatever by myself like you know yeah um my survival guide i you know leave early you, my biggest survival guide honestly to me at least my favorite thing is like drive west because a you're driving into the sunset yeah and b you're driving you're like gaining time as you go hmm. so i found like if even if i didn't wake up super early like i can get a lot of driving in and still end up somewhere and it's not like in the middle of the night but then when i drove uh <laughs> vancouver to nashville is a whole different story and this time I actually had to be there for a date because we had a songwriting camp. So it was a little bit more stressful. But you get to Nashville in the camp. So I get to Nashville and... Which is, yeah, it's the same room you were... Same, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I did a little camp at Trimble okay, House. Okay. That's crazy. Earlier this That's year. So it's funny. a cool, cool spot. Yeah, it was very cool. And so we had like three rooms going each day. And I can't remember if it was the second or third day. It was just me and Jason. And I remember being like, yeah, we could do me and you, but like we don't need to. Like we're, we work all the time together in LA. Maybe we should, you know, change it up. See but, other people. See other people, yeah. <laughs> but I'm so glad we did because it was it was such a fun day. And yeah, that day we wrote Byways. I'm trying to remember how the song even came about. I think like, I do remember that one. So often I write like most, if not all of the, like uh, I do write all the lyrics, but most most of the melodies in the, in the vocal. Often, like we have a lot of post-courses on this album. Often yeah. those are Jason. Jason's really great with melody. Yeah, I mean, the post-chorus on, on Byways. Like yeah, the, that's, oh, that's so, so cool. addictive. Yeah. A lot of them. And some of them are like more production and like like Winter Fall. Like Winter has like a very production yeah. focused one, which I love. But a lot of them are like who's and things like that. Um, Jason usually writes those because he just comes up with these crazy melodies. Like, that's great. Let's just who that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and usually I'll sing them. But for Byways, he was writing these who's and stuff and he was recording them and they sounded so good. And he's like, okay, now go record it. And I'm like, no, like we're so all of the ooze and whatever that are go there's there's some in the verses in the background in the verses yeah. of Byways and in the post chorus they're all actually Jason singing that. Oh, okay, yeah. And I think also for that day, I remember not feeling so hot that day actually, and being like, okay, we're writing a song, but like whatever. And I remember I wrote a chorus and I wasn't feeling it, so we ended up like stripping out the chorus, and then he ended up, I think he came up with the melody for the chorus. I was like, that's cool. It's it's funny, like my child, my like artist child comes up in sessions, especially when people write melodies. Cause like my favorite thing is the melodies. Yeah. And I want it to be my melody. Yeah. So I get like this like really egoic childish thing where that's it's me like, with lyrics. It's like, that's not a good melody. It's not mine. <laughs> but if, Jason, if somebody's writing a lyric, really? and I, yeah, like not even just on our stuff, but even yeah. like whatever, I, I'm just like, 
you know, but I can beat it. Like, I yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like, like nobody's nobody's as wordy as I am. Like, <laughs> yeah. I got, you know. Yeah. So I'm like that, but 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 melody. melody. Like, yeah. I really want to write the melodies. Oh, what did you call it? Song child. Artist, like artist, artist child. child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the inner child. So I think that I was probably like, yeah, that's cool or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then I started putting. Uh, words to it because it just also takes I feel like when it doesn't come from my wherever it comes from yeah. it like takes me a second it's like a foreign language it's like takes me a second to like wrap my head around what this melody is doing it's like reading somebody else's script as yeah. opposed to talking it's like exactly to, to co-op so I need to like yeah I suddenly need yeah. to like merge with it and I think it took me a while and I was singing it and then I was starting to put words into it I was like oh wow this is actually really good um, so then we recorded that and yeah we just like really love the song. And then I wrote that whole second verse thing. And I was like, is this going to be cool? Like it's kind of rappy, but, and then I put it down and it sounded cool. I was like one breath take <laughs> type thing. Cause it's not the last song, but it's sort of like the, the last song that follows structure. Yeah. Yes. Like in, in the, I mean, there is a structure obviously to fall winter, but this is the one where it's like start to finish. It's like, yeah. you know where everything is. Yes. And I think that w what's cool is one, how you sort of with that second verse kind of like, turn it on its head a little bit yeah. but also how if it is sort of the the concluding thought before the actual conclusion mm. it like does uh. a good way of kind of just like i think outlining the project well what's cool also with that song is like most yeah you know we wrote it in nashville and recorded in nashville and we kept a lot of what we were we we, we re-recorded some of it but we kept most of it and it does have like i feel like a lot of what's in that song is you know just the inspiration that i um, collected on that drive through like South Dakota and yeah. South Dakota is mentioned in the song and like yeah. all these different beautiful scenic byways that I was on over these drives. Like that really is obviously in the song, but it always sort of just ended after the second chorus. We had the song and just always ended so abruptly. And it was one song. We don't have any like really bridges on songs. Like they're all well, it's pretty 19. Exactly. Yeah. Like, let's get the song done in 36 seconds, you know? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but this song always just felt like it ended really abruptly. So we were like, maybe we should add a bridge and then go back to the chorus. Like, no. So, but then one day we just added this little outro thing that's on the yeah. track. And I think it actually acts as this very kind of, yeah, it like lowers you down into what you're going to experience next, which is winter fall. And it's also the last thing we wrote that ended up on the project. Like yeah. the, by far the most recent thing we wrote. So it like felt fresh when the album came out still. So that's, that's a little part that I, that I really enjoy. I think what's really cool about Winterfall is that both times I've seen it have been literal meditative experiences. Yes. Like the first time I saw it was at Hotel Cafe. Mm -hmm. He told us all to close our eyes and yeah. take a breath and, yeah. and let this sort of song like happen around you. And then the second time around, you had us all sit and you sat like you actually had like a like a bean chair or yeah. something. And you sat and you had and we all sat down. And it, it's I, I was telling Noah that it, like it almost had like a binaural like vi like like thing uh. to it like the way that it hits you. What sort of inspired you to have not just a song that develops the way that, that it does, yeah. but also to sort of incorporate your meditative experiences into mm -hmm. your live show. Well, what's interesting is like that, how it's come to be this like kind of meditative piece was not at all the intention at the, at the outset. We wrote um, Winter Fall, that was the last, uh, sorry, we wrote Winter. 
the first section of which is a f- kind of a full song. Mm-hmm. That was the last song we wrote before I left for Vancouver. Okay. Um, in that in that like six month period, it was like I was actually staying with. I hadn't so now I actually live with Jason, but at the time I was I had moved out of the sublet. I was staying in that whole time, and I was staying with Jason just like in their guest room, guest yeah. house. And uh, at that time, we ended up writing that song. We, at first, we called it Healing. Because I just, I was like, this is such a healing song. Yeah. And it was at a time that I was actually doing a lot of meditation. I was actually busy visiting a monastery. Oh. That's uh, an hour and a half outside of LA in Riverside. So at that time, like throughout the fall, I was going there. I almost, for a period, I went there like four weekends in a row. Can you just quickly describe like yeah. how, how you came about that and, and yeah. sort of what your experience so, is that with I that? mean, it's actually connected back to the silent retreats. I was, I was at a time where I was writing a lot of songs th- that fall and I was starting to hit a wall where I feel like I'm just like writing the same song every day and it's not inspiring anymore. And um, I was like, I, I need to like get out of here. And so I was thinking I'm going to go to that same sort of silent retreat that they have in uh, Montebello near Montreal. They have the same sort of one here in Joshua Tree. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'll go there, not for 10 days, but I'll just go for a few days and volunteer. You could volunteer in the kitchen or something. But even to volunteer, there was a whole waiting list. So I just started like Googling and yelping <laughs> like monasteries and silent retreat things that I could just go to for a few days. And I hit up a few places and I even called, I remember I called like a Zen monastery, maybe just outside of LA. And they were like, this isn't a hotel or like something like that. Like <laughs> well, it was really I, intense. Like, I, I imagine like the SNL sketch of just like somebody calling a monastery and being like, hello, is anybody there? I hear you breathing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hear you taking really deep breaths. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah. But I ended up uh, emailing this one in Riverside and they responded to me, um, kind of in this broken English of like, uh, you are invited to meditate with us at, at the thing. So I went to the to the monastery. I mean, really what it is, is it's a house in the suburbs of Riverside <laughs> with uh, these two monks. At the time there were, or now maybe the, again, there's three monks that live there and it's a Vietnamese monk. Do they wear the, the robes? Yeah, they wear the robes. Yeah. And it's a Viet, so there's a big Vietnamese Buddhist community actually in that area. So he's sort of like the, this community leader, but uh, he maintains this house with this beautiful piece of land in the back and they actually when I got there in the fall of last year it was like they'd just gotten the property maybe within that year so they were still developing it and they still are now so I went I remember I went and they were like you know you're you're welcome to stay here and we'll we'll feed you and we'll you know give you a room to sleep in and all this and I remember he used the word adjust he's like if we adjust to you and you adjust to us you're welcome to come back whenever you'd like wow if we don't adjust to you and you don't adjust to us this is you know a few days you stay and then you'll go and that'll be it yeah. Um, and then within like 24, 48 hours, it was clear adjusting was happening because he's, he, he, I mean, he's such a, you know, he's a, he's a monk who's been meditating his whole life and all this stuff. Like he's such a kind and compassionate human being who just like loves, like he, he loves you. He really does. Yeah. And it's, it's quite, it's quite incredible. It's so, like easy for him. So easy. Yeah. Um, and, and especially because I was a guest and it was my first time going, they were like giving me all these gifts. They gave me the guitar that I was mentioning that I was traveling with. Oh, wow. Like, so it's him. And then it, it was at the time there was like this, he's still there. Um, his like disciple was a, this monk who's 26 years old and became a monk when he was like maybe 22 from Dallas, Texas. So he's like this kid. Wow. He happens to be like six, nine. He's like huge, but he's like this kid who is a monk and he used to play Bob Dylan covers on guitar. And he's like, now I'm a monk can't do it. So he gave me his guitar. Um, and they gave me all sorts of stuff. They gave me sweaters. They gave me like, like Vietnamese, like handmade sweaters that were knit. You know, I went to this monastery and all I got was a suit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I started visiting that place and it was like my, my little like 
haven, you know, just outside of like busy, thoughty LA, I was able to go somewhere where it's like, it's amazing to just witness how these people live because they're not living a silent retreat lifestyle. They talk and they do things. And you know, the, the monk, ha like Vietnamese monk has a phone he's on Facebook and Instagram, maybe not Instagram, he's on Facebook <laughs> and he's a community leader. He talks to people all day and they're working on the fields and all this stuff, but they also live this meditative lifestyle. And it's, it's, it's an incredible thing to, to just witness how they just live their daily lives in this very mindful way, but not, you know, completely removed from the tasks of an ordinary life. I, I imagine he approaches Facebook in the same way that he approaches meditation or approaches anything like in the scope of balance. Whereas I, you know, I would argue that like we all approach social media, whether we want to or not in some sort of self-sacrificial way. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's kind of impossible not to. Yeah. And it's sort of yeah. like, like, like leaning into and diving into the escapism of it, the vicariousness of it. Yeah. And then of course the, like the sharing aspect, the validation, yeah. the feedback yeah. element of it. I imagine he approaches it with, with a balance that we don't necessarily mm. have. Yeah. Social media and probably Zen everything. Zen the art of Facebook. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. beautiful. You know, like everything is, is definitely approached with this mindful energy. And, and what I've learned from going there and, and these experiences, like mindful energy, it's like, it's, that's very true statement. It is an energy that can be cultivated. Mm -hmm. It is like, like building a muscle. Like, and doesn't have to exist in a vacuum. No, not at all. Yeah. And, and I really see it, especially when I spend like, cause I've, I've gone back that like more recently too. I definitely spent the most time there in the fall. Like I was going a lot, but I've, I've, I've went to visit once or twice in the more recent past. And what I realized is like when I'm there and we're, you know, meditating every morning, meditating every evening. And especially the last few times I've gone there, they were almost running their own little retreat, which is just like, they spend a bit more time yeah. in meditation than, than they were when I was first visiting. Um, and they were doing like walking meditations where you're really just walking and focused on walking and nothing else. And, you know, being there, it's like, I definitely start to see, see my mind slow down and, and, you know, start to notice that I'm just able to be more mindful throughout my day. Like notice that I'm eating and when I'm eating, I'm just like, there more for the eating and all this, but it's, it's kind of subtle. And, but it's really when I get back to LA and suddenly I have all of that energy cultivated within me against the backdrop of LA yeah, and being back in the energy here the, 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 that I start to really see like the difference, like mm. boy, oh boy, is it different? Yeah. Well, and that's like, uh, the, the famous, uh, David Foster Wallace speech. This is water. Mm -hmm. uh, have you, yeah, 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 I, have, yeah. I mean the whole idea of making a sacred moment out of being stuck in traffic or going to the grocery store. Yeah. Like the idea of like the default setting is making it one about you, yeah. you know, but two, like seeing all of these things as negative or distracting or like terrible when really it's like, like everything is an exercise of in being mindful yeah. or being present or being, I guess, open. Yeah. I don't know. I think I, like I always try to consider myself to be that person, but I think I've, I'm like realizing very starkly mm. in like the last couple of months that maybe because it's a default setting, you, if you don't actively work towards it, you know, you're passively working against it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, totally. But I think, I think what was really special about how you brought it into your show is you're like, right. be here. Oh yeah, that's how we got here. Yeah. It was winter. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think winter came about at a time when I was going there a lot and I was thinking about this a lot and, and, and having these experiences where I was being more mindful and it felt healing. That's how winter came about, which we originally named healing and then 
We changed the name to Winter. And then when I came back to LA after Vancouver and went to Nashville for the camp, and then I drove Nashville to LA and got to see more of the States, went to like New Mexico was a place that really blew me away. Then I get back to LA and this time I actually move, that's when I move in with Jason and Liv. And a few days later, we decide to write a song. So we write the song and it's cool, but I didn't love it. But we wrote this bridge part for it. Or we added at one point, he's like, he did this production for the bridge and sent it to me. And I went into my room now that's at that house in the main house. And I quickly, it was like really short. I just wrote like a few lines and I was like, this is dope. Like, I really love the energy of it. So we recorded that. What were the first lines? Well, those lines are. So those are the first ones you wrote. Yeah. Yeah. That was the bridge part. And then we, we, slapped that in and squeezed it amongst this other song that we had called Fragile, I think. Mm. And then I was like, I don't love Fragile, but I love that one part, like the whole fall part. He's like, cool, let's rewrite the song, but we'll leave that part in. Great. We rewrite another song around this fall thing. And this time we call the song Montreal. And it's like sort of about me being from Montreal and stuff. And he's like super into it. I'm like, yeah, it's cool. It's (laughs) it's pretty cool. but I just love that one part. <laughs> and like, it, it kind of lived on its own for me. So then I then had this idea to like, what if we took winter and somehow brought it into that fall part and somehow built this music piece that brings us there without ever stopping. He's like, cool. And he starts working on it. And then he comes to me, he's like, I don't really know how to do this. Cause you have to like modulate the keys. You got to change the tempo, but you got to do it with like people enjoying what you're doing. Right. So he won. So he decided we're going to hit up Jose Parody, who's like a good friend of his. who's also from Berkeley. Do you know him? Jose? I don't think so. No. He might be a few years older. He is a film composer out oh. here. And so he's like, I'm going to send it to Jose. He's going to kill this. Cause it's such a cinematic yeah, transition. It totally, yeah. It's very cinematic. So he, he sent us, and, and the first one he sent us was like super long, you know, like really long. I mean, maybe he's used Five to minute, wor- working yeah, on yeah. like 30 minute episodes of shows and stuff. I'm like, and it, but it was like beautiful. There's so many beautiful parts, but it was like, definitely this is too long. So we started sh- uh, shorting, shortening it. And also Jason started working on it to bring in percussive elements and, and have it weave, you know, and we, re- we worked on it for a while. Like it took us time to get to a place where I was like, this is the vibe, but I always knew it was in there. We just needed to like squeeze it out type thing. Um, and by the time we, we had it, I was like, this is, this is beautiful. And it became like our favorite parts of the, of the whole project. We joke because like, we're like, man, the, our favorite part is like the one part that Jason didn't produce and that I'm not singing on. <laughs> like, you know, that's like, that's like a special yeah. kind of like, like very nice self-loathing of just like, Oh, yeah. I love, I yeah. love everything we weren't like, involved in. This like, project's uh, great. We worked on the whole thing, but like Jose Parody is the <laughs> star of the show. Isn't that always how it is? Yeah. So then we built that thing and, and still I was like, this is beautiful, but I, it never really clicked to me that this is like super, this meditative moment until we started building the show and we were running these rehearsals. And in those moments I was starting to feel like it's a nice vibe. Like I then I started just going like at rehearsals. It's like, I'd like to welcome you guys to the meditation portion of this rehearsal. And I started running these little meditations of like focusing in on the music and really allowing yourself to, to let go of your thoughts or judgments or opinions about what's going on and just really um, immerse yourself in the raw audio of what you're hearing. And they started to really gravitate to that experience. They really liked it. Um, so I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna do it at the show. And then I started doing it at the shows and I really enjoyed doing it. It was one of my favorite parts of the show. And you know, after that first hotel cafe show that you were at, yeah. a bunch of people came out to me and, and said how much they enjoyed that part. It was interesting to see how then at the next show, which was at Sayers Club, which is more of like a clubby environment. Yeah. <coughs> I don't think it went over as well. <laughs> <laughs> I 
they're, the they're, like, they're, they're like, okay, we're gonna make cocktails in the in the back. We're gonna yeah. Yeah. bartenders yeah. are like, what? The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. People have their bottles, like the you know, with the. With oh, the, with the body, with the sparklers, the sparklers and stuff, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's like everyone close your eyes. <laughs> hey, so, that's, so that's part of it, definitely too. that you know, and but it, like something like the show this week at, at at Gibson, where it was like super intimate vibe, and there were carpets on the floor, and everyone sat down, like it was incredible. And and we today this time we tried something different with putting an Alan Watts audio into the track. That's Alan Watts. It's Alan Watts. Yeah, okay. it was, it's about like the mystery of you'll never yourself. be able to you know you'll never be able to taste your own tongue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you'll mm. never be able to bite your own teeth. Like yeah. I, I've I've always thought that was so fascinating that the reason we need other people is because we can't experience ourselves. Mm. Oh wow, that's beautiful. Like you know, yeah. it's like you get to yeah. I don't know. Well, it trips you up. Yeah, for sure. Like yeah, yeah. it's like you're we're trying to. You'll turn, always be a mystery to yourself. Yeah, yeah. That because to turn consciousness on itself is yeah. a task in futility. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Um, but that, I mean, that's the thing because you can't. You know, I mean, the, I think one of the reasons even why we love conversation or games or uh, or being in relationships is because you can't talk to yourself. You can't play chess against yourself you can't, can't tickle yourself yeah you, you can't, can't do it yeah totally. you, you can't you can't hug yourself without yeah. feeling yourself too well i mean from the this might get super esoteric no, go. from the yeah. from the um perspective of oneness you know we are tickling ourselves and playing chess with ourselves and all true. these things you know like oh you mean like broad like you mean the full oneness yeah like okay, if yeah, we yeah. are all you know we're all just like and Alan Watts actually has some beautiful quotes about sure. you know life is a game, life is a drama type things where we're just all life, the universe you know, experiencing itself. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, we yeah. are the universe experiencing self in these different bodies, different forms, and playing this hide and seek game where I am me and you are you and we are separate. Yeah, you guys are on that side of the I room, I'm on this side of the room. No. But really, yeah. we're just all in this room here talking with ourselves yeah. <laughs> about yeah. stuff. You know, it's it's a fun game, and it's the end of the Logic record with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Is that what he says? Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is God and and says, "Hey, logic, you're you're everybody in the world." Um, yeah, but that's beautiful. I mean, I like to I like to think about that perspective, and it's something that I've brought up a few times at shows now, which is like what I like about what I'm really starting to pick up about doing more shows is like it's really cool to be in an environment where a group of human beings are all focused on one thing, hmm. and there's not like 25 conversations in a restaurant where everyone's like attention is scattered about in these different little pockets of, of focus, but it's everyone's focused on this one centralized thing, which happens to be the, my body yeah. and the audio that's coming out of my body slash the instruments and the instrumentalists on stage with me and the tracks, whatever. But we're all sort of like focused on this one thing and it's, and it's, and it's creating something that's bigger than ourselves because you're creating the music by hearing it too. Well, and yeah. what, what was so interesting about, and like I said, I had like a moment with it because like I was, I was watching all of my thoughts come and go. Like I was sitting with it uh, and I was, you know, I was beautiful. watching you and obviously like you've got the Gibson showroom and you've got this beautiful soundscape and you've got all of these people that we know, like some great artists and songwriters and industry people like all sitting down perfectly attentive. Yeah. And I watched the thought, like, I want to put this on Instagram. Come. Yeah. I reach for my phone yeah. and then it goes. Right. I don't. Yeah. And then I, I find my thoughts going to my ex. I see that thought and I want to think about her and maybe time travel to a memory or think about maybe calling her or something. And then it goes. I just watched every thought that I could have in the moment yeah. leave my head until yeah. all I was doing was watching this performance. Mm. And th that's, I think, where I had this sort of profound experience of for a second being thoughtless. 
Yeah. Um, wow. And I, I think it really hit me. I think, I mean, it, it, it's been a weird week, but I think it yeah. really hit me. That's incredible. That's meditation. That was meditation. You yeah, you meditated. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that, that was something that really, you know, that sort of epiphany or whatever started to really like integrate itself for me on that first, like late into that first retreat that I did, which was we're spending a lot of time, you know, like witnessing our body, witnessing our thoughts, all this. And I started to really understand what it means to like, wow, like you really don't need to believe and take hold and get dragged around by every thought that goes through your mind. Mm-hmm. And it, and it takes, it takes cultivating a bit of that space. And it sounds like that's something that you experienced at that show, which was like, when you get that, when you can build that space between you and the thought and not be like completely flush as identifying as that thought, when you can create that space and look at it as the separate thing, this thought about me grabbing my Instagram phone is now is on some ticker symbol that's coming in and it goes out and I don't need to follow it because I'm not it. That's like a, a, a mind blowing thing for, you know, a lot of people never even touch that. Yeah. Um, or even have the, are aware outside of just instinct. Yeah. And yeah. it's a very powerful thing because it allows you to, you know, I always he- heard even before about like responding versus reacting, but that's, th- this is where it exists. It exists in that space of like being behind it and mm-hmm. being able to like, okay, I'm like, cause, cause well, we, then we also get these powerful ones, right? These big storms of thought and energy that come in. That, that lead the, you spiraling. Yeah, that's like, like you, you, you can't help. It's so overwhelming. Like you're going to drown in it and yeah. get dragged around in it by for a minute or a day. But to be able to build that space, the more space you build, the more the bigger storms that can come in and you could be like, okay, that's here right now and it's going to go away. It's impermanent. And like you can decide, you, the, the witness of that, can decide how to react, whether you're going to actually grab your phone in a fully mindful way and take that picture or not. Neither one matters. Like, and you start to also recognize, I'm remembering this stuff as I'm no, saying no, it to you right course. now. Yeah, yeah. And you're helping me do it. But you, it even allows you to like, you know, taste, I think a bit of like what true instinct is, you know? And it, because it, you can only make like a really good decision when you realize that neither decision matters. Or, 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 or find or find some sort of peace and discomfort. Like I, totally. I, I think like I was like, you know, while I was watching, like was like recognizing that I was not necessarily solving anything by being in the moment, but that for a second I could have peace from it, hmm. you know, or that I could like let everything that totally. I have, like just sort of simmer there for a second yeah. because I'm realizing and I'm realizing it by just getting like smacked in the face by it. Yeah. I'm realizing that like being adult is not like not drowning. Like being an adult is like learning how to breathe underwater. Mm, like or beautiful. or like at least just wow, like that's good. like being comfortable with that yeah, feeling. Yeah, you know, like like recognizing just how that. quickly everything can go to shit, and at least just putting up like the balusters you can, like mm. putting up the 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 defenses that you can, without having those defenses keep people out. And and yeah. that's the thing is that like if the choice is let people in and get hurt, take risks and get hurt whatever, or just like numb yourself out, then I think I would rather, yeah. I think I would rather the former, even though it sucks, Yeah, you know, like I think out of the former, even though it ultimately leads to more, just, just from a quantity standpoint, more anguish, like yeah. and more anxiety and more everything, but it also, but that's a byproduct of it always leading to more. Mm-hmm. And I think I'll, more, yeah. I think I'll take 
more. Yeah. The reason we like music, the reason we like meditation, the reason why we like anything that keeps our brains sort of occupied in a certain place is because it teaches us, in a sense, how to deal with the moreness of everything. Yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. I'm learning. Well, I hear what I'm you're figuring saying. it out. And, and something yeah. you said uh, struck something in me, which was like, oh, yeah, you weren't solving anything by being in the mm. moment. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I find like, you know, our egos, our minds are very, they're very good. They're very subtle and tricky. And I feel like one often like a thought, like when you do like allow yourself to settle into the moment and get, and, and you know, cultivate a bit more presence and then maybe a bit of peace comes or whatever. It's very easy for the mind to go like, oh, I'm in a great state right now to figure this problem out. Yeah. It's the, like, yeah, it's like check, solved it, got it, clarity. Yeah. Because yeah. we just want to solve problems. Yeah, we just want to solve yeah, problems. Well, I, yeah. yeah, it's just calculation. Like we're, just, we we're just puzzle solvers. Bit, yeah. I think our, so our profession is like professional puzzle solvers, mm -hmm. which means that like to a degree that instinct is amped up you know, more than the average person. But mm -hmm. but that's that's almost to a detriment sometimes because so much of like what we do comes down to being good at solving problems because we oftentimes make them, whether that's by engaging too much or by disengaging. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I like, and not realizing the sort of detriment of both. So I think trying to figure out some sort of balance in it, it or at least just a comfort in that, like, we're going to be like this. Yeah. It's going to feel like this. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. Right. Is where I'm at right now. Yeah. And usually on the podcast, we end with like a, like a question round. And I, I almost want to skip that in lieu of one important question, mm. which is the record's done. You live in Los Angeles. You're a year removed from, from everything in Montreal. Mm. Do you feel better? Great question. Do I feel better? Um, I feel, it's funny, like, I feel all sorts of things all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Lately, I feel a lot of gratitude. And I feel like, I, I feel like I, I was just thinking about this earlier today, which is like, I always heard people go like, oh, this is very humbling. And I didn't mm. really understand what they meant. Like, what does that mean that it's very humbling when all these good things start to happen or whatever? It's why well, I'm so humbled by that. Yeah. And I've been starting to like maybe come into that feeling because lately I've been noticing that, you know, dreams that I've had slash just even like the space that I wish to carve out for myself, you know, like I don't, I have goals and things that I'd love to for take form into my life and all these things. But really like I love writing songs and I love doing it because it's therapeutic. It's another retreat for me. It's like, it's introspective and it's a way for me to, like you say, like solve the puzzle, but even then also dip below the puzzle. Like for me, that's what the mathematics of nature is about. The math is like the mind trying to analyze and figure everything out and nature is just, right below it, like. It doesn't need to be analyzed. Need, yeah, it's yeah. present, it's it doesn't need to there. solve anything. And nature doesn't need us. Like that's the best Yet we part are nature. It. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, so to me, music is plays at that intersection, which is like, it allows you to dip down into that artist child who's, has something to share. And, and also just like that tree, you know, like has nothing to share. It's just like chilling. And I feel like that energy can also come out into songs. Well, and I, I loved at the release show how you had like places where people could, you know, grab a crayon and draw and, yeah. and how the, the art sort of is yeah. reminiscent of that sort of child totally. wonder. And I, I took a purple crayon and kept it in my pocket from yeah. the show. Amazing. So it reminded me of Harold and the Purple Crayon. I love it. Yeah. You know? And that was a book that I yeah. read a lot. My mom just bought it for me again. She gave it to me. <laughs> What's, it's I, I just bought it for my one-year-old cousin. Incredible. For, for his birthday. Because there's something about that, like, 
Harold wants a balloon, he draws a balloon. Yeah. Like that's kind of I love that book. Right? Yeah, I mean that's the kind of like mentality you find yourself yeah. in when you want to make something out of nothing. Well, so you say it, you say it yourself in what you just said. Like I feel like I'm carving out the space for that child who wants to draw with a crayon to make songs and to feel better. And it feels like the world is like the and the universe is like responding to that in very kind ways. And that's why I feel like humbled and a lot of gratitude that like things seem to be just taking shape for me to have the space to do that. Mm. It's a very powerful thing. And it, and it also puts me into this space of like, you know, cause it's easy to also get all centralized and be like, wow, like everyone's doing this for me and that's amazing. I'm incredible. Like, <laughs> but also it's really fun to get, to touch the feeling of like, no, like we're really, you know, back to that unity thing of like, we're really doing this together. And we're really just like, all these people are coming and I'm one, one piece in the puzzle and we're all just doing it. And it's like, it's, it's this beautiful selfless act of, of, of creating something that, that the world and that people can enjoy and, and get healed by or, or what have you. Cause maybe, I mean, maybe yeah. you don't, obviously the journey of feeling better is, is a long one. Like may, maybe everything isn't where it could be, but for a moment of the show, like it, I'm sure it wasn't just me. It was probably, hell, Danny, you know, it was probably like everybody sitting next to me and, and Rabbit and everybody, like in a sense, you now have uh, a part to play in making other people feel better as well. Yeah. If not for a moment. I mean, that's yeah. just like, you know, so. Yeah. And that's, that's a kind of beautiful responsibility, I think. Totally. Yeah. Yes. I agree. Uh, and a humbling one. A, a very humbling one. At that, yeah. And I think I was really in this space, you know, when I wrote Winter, which was, and I'm still, you know, but it is something that started to take shape, I think, then, which was like, you know, me getting maybe closer and closer to what the raison d'etre is and like what, what I'm doing and whatever. What I learned at, at the monastery was, you know, they do a lot of chanting before we meditate. Mm -hmm. And it was fun to like do because it's like singing and it was weird. And they have the English writing and sometimes I would read the English writing, but there was this one song or one chant that they would uh, sing that I really like resonated with. It was called the 10 perfections. And what it is, is it goes through 10 different qualities that one should and could cultivate. That's like the seeds are already within us to cultivate that, those qualities. And they all live in like, you know, this space of like patience, truthfulness, loving kindness, you know, determination, um, equanimity, all these beautiful qualities yeah, that wow. are worth cultivating and that are healing. And I was like, wow, it's amazing. This boils it all down. And, and I, I thought, you know, that this work of introspection, whether I'm in a session or on a pillow or whatever, or a podcast or a podcast, <laughs> really? No, truly. And, you know, we're, 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 we're inquiring right here, right now yeah. and learning things about each other um, and learning things about ourselves. It's, it's an incredible thing that the act of doing this is really an act of maturing ourselves and healing ourselves and cultivating these sorts of qualities that I would like to cultivate. And in doing that, we are left, what's left behind are these art, simple, simply artifacts of that, which is the music and mm -hmm. the visuals or whatever. Those are just like artifacts of that work. Mm. And in sharing those, they allow other people to move their shit through that artifact. You, you inspire people to come to grow and mature. To do that same yeah, work. to have the similar realizations or you know. their own version. Yeah, and there's that quote 
that I think is in this book, Art and Fear. Do you know that book? No. It's a great book. I have the audio book. It was something I would put on, on these drives. It's just like very like grounded, down to earth dudes who are like very much more, I think they come from like the academic mm-hmm. higher art world, but they're, I don't know. I really like it, even though I, I've never really touched the academic side of the stuff, but they just get to the brass tacks of like art and fear. Here we go. Um, and one of the things that they say, and maybe they're quoting someone else, I don't know, but it's um, if you want to work on your artwork on your life. Well, so, because uh, you're reminding me, this sort of path of, of, of thought yeah. is reminding me of Sending the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, where yeah. He's, and I, I don't know who he's paraphrasing, because I know he paraphrases it in it. Have you read Sending the I've never of, finished it, but I've read a chunk of it. Um, we, both, we both read it. And he, a quote that always stuck with me was that the two steps making perfect art is be a perfect person and then make art. Because, mm. the, you know, the idea is that, like, totally. if you live a life, like, if you go out, if you you know, exercise and eat and sleep and hydrate and, and meditate and play video games and, you know, do the things that make you feel like human, your art will benefit from it. Oh, Matthew, this was awesome. This is great. Oh my God. Thank you for coming on. I love being here and doing this with you guys. <laughs> yeah. It's so much fun. I, you know, I, I hope that when this comes out in 2020, like, whatever we're chewing on. I mean, I'm sure we'll be chewing on something else in 2020. Oh, yeah. But I, I, I hope that we all, like, just keep going into the new year with this sort of growth mentality. Yeah. You know, because I think next year is going to be really good. Me too. Like, I, I, I have a good feeling about it, but it's Same. mostly because this year is, like, I think from um, a growth standpoint, just, like, you know. Intense. Just, yeah, it was intense. It was definitely intense. I've been having this, like, feeling, kind of recurring thing in conversations with friends and what's going on people's lives and what have you of right now. And as we enter the end of the year, I mean, at least for me too, I know obviously a lot of people are taking time off and slowing down a bit. And I've definitely experienced like a faster pace of life than I'm used to. And I'm excited to slow down and sort of take rest. But um, something I'm just, that's popping up into my mind a lot is about like just burning like fire. And to me, it feels like, at least in my life and maybe in others, that I feel like this end of world, end of year, and perhaps this whole year signifies kind of this like burning off of a lot of shit. Mm. And 2020 feels nice and clarity. I mean, 2020, yeah. vision, you know? So like- And also let, being in your 20s in the 20s, like- Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm turning 30 in ah, 2020, I mean, I, but you know, it's, I'll live half of 2020 half, at, yeah, yeah. in my 20s. So I kind of like this idea of like, everything just burning away and, and starting, starting real fresh in 2020, so. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people, whether it's like politically or environmentally or professionally or personally or all of the above, yeah. are just kind of having like a, like a reality check. Yeah. Like I think, you know, what hit me in the face is that like how I think of myself versus like how I really am are two very different things. And, and how I think about the planet or how I yeah. think about other people or how yeah. whatever are are not necessarily like congruent, nor are they sustainable. Mm. I think that's something I'm excited to shed. But um, I feel like it comes from that place of just like the brain being like, like, all right, I, I'm at peace now. I've solved it. I fixed it. It's like, I think we all have this thing in us where we want to just like get the right answer. Like we yeah. want to like get, like get, we want to skip to the part where everything's okay. Cause that's yeah. just our, our nature. I'm looking forward to everything you're working on, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to what the year is going to bring you. And and Thank I look you. forward to hanging and stuff. Like For sure, man. You, you got, I think you got your head on in a way that I hope to, to one day, I don't know, slow this all down a little bit. <laughs> let's let's just, get, just find some zen and in, in just be able to sit at a show for a sec. Right. You know? Well, so, well thank you, man. Thank you. Really appreciate it. 
like to thank Isotope for their early support of Talking Lion.